0: hello and welcome to episode 13 of the mr barton maths podcast with me craig barton this time around i spoke to jamie frost Jamie's a maths teacher at the High Achieving Tiffin School and the creator of the amazing Dr. Frost Maths. Now, when I say Tiffin is High Achieving, I really do mean High Achieving. To put this into some sort of context, Jamie would expect around half of his bottom set Year 11s to achieve an A-star grade, which just about puts them on par with our top set but this context led to a fascinating conversation about how to challenge these high achieving students which I hope is something all teachers will find interesting and useful I know I certainly did so in a wide-ranging interview we covered the following things and more how does Jamie use the categories of structure exposition assessment and differentiation to help plan his lessons what teaching gimmicks does Jamie not like Why is thinking through the sequence of lessons so important and what does the Tiffin Maths Scheme of Work look like? How does Jamie make use of UK MT Maths Challenge questions within his lessons together with skill check questions? Jamie talks us through a bad lesson he delivered and what he learnt from it. We discuss if it is easier to teach high achieving students than low achieving students and whether Jamie would ever consider working in a more traditional comprehensive school we uncover a form of differentiation that is necessary when working with high achieving students that is not commonly discussed in the teaching profession. Jamie explains why he feels it is vitally important that students learn to internalize mathematics and he illustrates this concept with some really interesting examples we look at the process of resource creation what have Jamie's future plans for his site and finally Jamie shares some really valuable tips and advice which are aimed at trainee teachers and NQTs but which will ring true for so many teachers including myself Now, I'll be honest, this is another long interview. A few people have contacted me via Twitter to ask why my podcasts are not the usual 30-minute duration. Well, there are a few reasons. One is definitely the extra time it takes to edit content when you have a pile of marking waiting for you. But most importantly, the podcasts that I enjoy listening to are the longer-form interview podcasts. Whether it's Tim Ferriss or The Comedian's Comedian, they're all regularly over two hours long. So, if there's someone I really like listening to, then I want to listen to them a lot. And conversely, if there's someone I don't really want to listen to, then 30 minutes or even 5 minutes is going to seem too long so I really want these podcasts to give you and me a comprehensive insight into the teacher themselves why they came into the profession the planning process and a deep understanding of the other areas of maths teaching and education in general that interest them hence I make no apology for talking to Bruno Reddy for over half an hour about behavior routines in lessons or Will Emney for about 40 minutes on his views on memory and retention these are the areas that interest me and I really hope interest you as well but if you're a bit pushed for time and a particular area of the conversation is not hooking you in then maybe skip forward a few minutes and i'm pretty sure you will land on something that will grab you anyway i know what you're thinking we could probably shave off a few precious minutes if you just shut up and bring on the guest yeah 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 so without further ado here is jamie frost i really hope you enjoy it and i will see you on the other side Okay, so I'd like to start off as ever with the three math speed dating questions. So question number one for you, Jamie, is what is your favourite number and why?
1: Um, I'm going to say pi. Now, it might seem a bit boring. Um, You usually associate this with circles, but... um, Pi is so fundamental to maths because it's kind of one of these sort of five fundamental constants, you've got like e, pi, uh, zero, one, and i, and, and those who've um, done FP2 might be familiar with these constants and how they link into Euler's identity, um, but if, I just find it a fascinating number, and there's and my favourite proof in maths is, um, well, if you were to think of two random uh, positive integers, let's say I, I picked a number, I picked, I don't know, 11, um, and you picked 12. And, and the question might be, given those two randomly picked numbers, what's the probability that they don't share any factors other than one, we, we say they're, they're co-prime? Um, and it turns out, um, and the proof itself is, is not that complicated, that the probability that two numbers don't share any factors other than one is actually um, six in pi squared.
0: Six over pi squared. Flipping heck.
1: Which is it's about 60, 61 percent. I put on my calculator earlier. And it's just seem it's such an unusual use for a number we associate with circles. But it's because of these kind of relationship between these different um, constants that we, we see pi emerge in all sorts of interesting ways.
0: Could you? You couldn't. Have you, you've hooked me in straight. This is my kind of speed date straight away here, hey, Jamie. You, you couldn't g- give us as kind of easy to understand as possible a reason why pi phi, why pi appears in in such a, a kind of strange context as as you know, prime of two numbers.
1: Yeah, well, the actual, I should point out that if you, um, go to the, uh, Riemann Zeta Club materials on my website, there's actually a sort of, in the epilogue of my number theory slides, there's a kind of proof at the end. Um, but the, the, the reason that pi emerges, um, is something called, I think, Abel's theorem. It's the idea, if you have, like, say, 1 over 1 squared, plus 1 over 2 squared, plus 1 over 3 squared, plus 1 over 4 squared, and you go up to infinity, so you have the sum of the reciprocal of the squares of all the positive integers, um, that actually gives you pi squared over 6. Now, the proof of that is is very complicated, and I don't fully understand it myself. Um, And and you often find pi when you have these sort of convergent um, series. Um, But once you kind of accept that, um, then using that to find that the probability six and pi squared is relatively simple um, and it's just using kind of thinking about like times in two independent probabilities together and sort of thinking about all the possible prime numbers it might divide by and and it's relatively
0: simple. Flipping act, that's, that's fascinating superb stuff well wow, I love that well how about number two then Jamie what was your favorite topic in maths as a student? um i've
1: got I've got three quick things here <laughs> um and and the first is is a topic which I, I call um combinatorics. Um, and um, other teachers might be more familiar with this as, as kind of permutations, combinations, yes. which is now in the GCSE syllabus. Um, but I think my initial interest was when I actually was at primary school and I, I saw some, uh, some playing with marbles and stuff, and, and there was different coloured marbles. I know I had marbles myself, it's going a long way back. <laughs> and um, I sort of asked a teacher, how many ways are there of arranging these kind of six marbles in a line? And I think they, they went to another teacher to sort of to consult with someone else, and they came, and this other teacher sort of found. And he said oh it had something to do with kind of factorials and such and they weren't able to explain to me at the time but I kind of looked, went away and sort of found about those um, and then I sort of had more interest in um, secondary school. so um, during GCSE I, I used to be even though I was at Tiff in my current school for sixth form I was a you know, bog standard comprehensive before um, and in maths my teacher would often say you don't really have to kind of participate in the lesson you can just sort of do your own stuff so, so one of the things um I looked at was kind of um, probability and kind of arrangements to do with lottery mathematics. Um, and I sort of tried to do some stuff myself, but it's very hard without kind of looking at resources beforehand. And then we had this um, great kind of teacher trainee who came in. And I sort of asked him a bit about it and he said, oh, I kind of did that uni recently. And then he sort of next lesson, he brought me in this pamphlet from university explaining all sorts of stuff about lottery mathematics. And I was I was absolutely um, fascinated by it. Um, yeah, yeah, it was really great.
0: Fantastic! No, it's, it's it's an area that grabs me a bit, and I'm I'm fuming. So we we in my previous school, um, we taught the OCR syllabus for um, A level, and in the stats one module there, it was full of permutations and combinations. And then I've moved to the current school that I'm at now, and we do AQA, and it's not even in stats one or stats two, and it absolutely infuriates me because it's my favourite bit of maths. And like you say, with the with the lottery stuff as well, you can do loads of loads of lovely questions and loads of counterintuitive results as well. Yeah, no. I'm and I'm glad it's kind of a bit of a reemergence in the GCSE, albeit in a, a quite a simplistic form. But no, good good choice there with, with perms and comms. Did, did you mention you add them um, to two other kind of favourite topics? Uh,
1: yeah. So I just generally, again, at school, right, I was sort of really interested in patterns and kind of numbers and shapes and stuff. So one thing I looked at, kind of in my own time, is um, looking at different sequences and, and to see if I could find the kind of position to term formula for those. Um, so, um, obviously, we learned about kind of linear sequences called arithmetic sequences, but I kind of looked at quadratic sequences, which we wasn't in the syllabus at the time um, and wasn 't until recently in fact um, in the, in the GCSE syllabus, um, and sort of tried to work out the method myself how I could find this kind of quadratic formula for this sequence with a second difference, and then I kind of extended it to kind of c- cubic um, sequences where you have a third difference um, and things like that. Um, and another, another investigation I did was into uh, perfect numbers and, and sort of I think it was a cousin of mine who told me about perfect numbers when I was quite small um, and I thought I would try to sort of see the pattern in them and, and, and it was quite difficult to sort of find like the next perfect number and such um, so I sort of tried to do some investigation and sort of bench and this is kind of in the early earlier days of internet where Wikipedia wasn't quite so big and you had to <laughs> dial up and, and you had to sort of pave every minute and such so it's quite difficult to look these things up and I'm kind of glad that was the case because um i could sort of investigate these things um independently uh, without sort of cheating and find what uh, other people had done um but i eventually spotted there were triangular numbers and then and sort of triangular numbers of a particular form and then when i kind of learned to program i sort of then sort of challenged myself to find what was the biggest perfect number i could find Um, and and yeah that that was really fun
0: Flipping egg, no, I, I like it, and I'm, well, I'm gonna gonna dig into later, Jamie, because uh, this is an area that fascinates me. I'm gonna use this as a bit of a, a teaser for <laughs> for the listening audience, because it's what's coming across here it, it, to me certainly is that you're a very passionate, keen mathematician from from an early age, and I often wonder, and again, I, I don't want you to answer this just now, but just just mull it over, how then have you found it throughout your teaching career kind of coming up against students who don't share that passion and and is it is it more difficult to engage them and have you developed strategies as you as your teaching career has has progressed to engage students who perhaps weren't like you uh, uh, as you were at their age, if that makes sense, so that's something I definitely want to, want to come into later um, and did, did you mention I had a third topic there Jamie? Is it uh, oh yeah there
1: was um it was um, trigonometry, so um, I was trying to um well, back in that day I'm, I'm not that old i am only first <laughs> um, when, when I was in secondary school um, I was trying to we had acorn computers and they they had um, a kind of programming language called basic. Yes. Um, on them, and um, I was trying to sort of make this um, uh, analog clock, and I was trying to work out um, what would be the x y position of kind of end of the either minute hand or the hour hand, um, and work out where to draw it uh, based on what the current minute and the current um, the current uh, hour. And I couldn't sort of work out how to do it or what, me- what methods and maths to use. And then we eventually kind of in- uncovered trigonometry in lessons and I was taught this. And I suddenly realised, ah, this solves my <laughs> problem. And I kind of went away and sort of coded it and I had my my working um, clock. And I sort of, um, I tell my students this nowadays. I sometimes have something called frost uh, true Stories, which I'm so lessons. <laughs> and it's when I, I teach them trigonometry, I actually sort of start with this particular problem that I had at school um, and how learning about trigonometry eventually allowed me to solve this problem.
0: Fantastic. That's superb stuff. Fantastic. And final question of the speed date, Jamie. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher?
1: Um Two things. Um, Firstly, I I was very, well, I still am, uh, very into uh, music and there was a a brief kind of um, temptation to possibly do music at university. I eventually decided against this, firstly, because I'm, I'm not very good at writing essays. Um, <laughs> and I, I just wanted to keep it as a hobby. It's something I'm absolutely yes. passionate about, playing the piano. Um, and I didn't want that to become a kind of bore. I just wanted it to remain as a hobby. And and just also thinking about my career as well. Um, I wanted to do something more mathematics-based uh, to kind of keep my um, possibilities open. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I might be, tempted to be like a concert piano player, um, but I'm I'm just not, well practiced enough really uh, but it, it's something that I, I know that like kind of practicing for a particular performance and piano concerto and something and then playing with a, a real life orchestra like there's, there's nothing more exhilarating I think um, and the second thing is um, a bit more academic really um, that I don't know work as a kind of researcher um, maybe for someone like Google and such kind of in in sort of artificial intelligence because that's kind of my background
0: Nice superb. Well that that's a great little segue into into the next question Jamie. So can you talk us through um the steps involved um getting you to where you are in your career to date.
1: Um so yes as I said I was initially a student at a comprehensive school and then I changed to what I the school I currently teach at uh, tiffin school. Uh tiffin school is is um a selective school. They they have a 11 plus. Um and then I, I went to Oxford. I actually did um, a computer science degree. Um, it's a, a misconception that I did kind of straight mathematics. And even though there's quite a lot of uh, mathematics in my course and, and some overlap with, with the mathematicians and the courses we did, um, I'm actually really um, a computer scientist. Um, so I had my um, four years there, um, really enjoyed it. Um, and then went to work for uh, an investment bank uh, and then I was kind of um, coding algorithms for bond trading uh, systems and such, which, which sounds really interesting like algorithmic bond trading <laughs> um, but actually I found it very dull um, and um, it's it just, the job became very monotonous. It was a case that you kind of get up in the morning, kind of commute to work. And for me, it was quite a long commute, kind of getting to Canary Wharf, um, sort of get through the day, like constantly looking at my watch, and then come home, sort of go to sleep. And then it was a, a repeat of that yes. cycle. And I kind of felt like I wanted something a bit more um, edifying than that. So I, um, I, there's just a point where i kind of reached breaking point. I was like, I'm fed up with this job. Um, so I emailed my old project supervisor, who supervised my fourth year, Um, undergraduate dissertation and said um, do you have any PhD sort of places in the horizon and he said yes the the deadline is um, about 12 hours time (laughs) so I had to sort of like stay up really late that night kind of writing this application sent it off um, and had my interview like a few days later and within a week of me sort of deciding I've had enough I'd resigned from my job gave my months notice and then was um, back in Oxford again (laughs) so I was there for um, three and a half years um, absolutely loved it Um, but I I kind of got quite involved in in teaching there, so lots of kind of departmental teaching and eventually uh, teaching in my college, which was uh, Worcester College with some students there. So um, lots of AI stuff, kind of computational linguistics as well, which is how we combine statistics with kind of linguistics, like how we can find mathematical models for different aspects of of kind of language tasks, tasks in language, uh, which is a particular interest of mine. And... um, yeah, I really absolutely love the teacher and thought maybe um, this would be a kind of good potential career. Because I've, I've come into the end sort of thinking what I wanted to do after. Um, and I kind of decided... Actually, I didn't want to become a postdoctoral researcher. I didn't really like sort of having to write academic papers and stuff and this kind of publish or or perish mentality. Um, so I asked my um, old school Tiffin that I went to at Sick Form um, whether I'd be able to sp- spend a week of my holiday there kind of teaching some lessons and um, kind of observing other teachers and kind of getting a feel for it. Um, and um, yeah, they're absolutely fine. They, they let me do all sorts of stuff there. And I absolutely loved it. And I was that gave me the kind of teaching bug from then I really that's I knew that's really all I wanted to do um and I've been in teaching since
0: fantastic and how, how many years is that Jamie that you've uh, been so talking? I'm at
1: the end of my fourth year including my training year
0: Superb, got it, that's fantastic. Well, uh, let's move from that then to what's my favourite, well, one of my favourite parts of the show is where where we dig into teachers' thought processes when they're putting a lesson together. So if I could ask you to pick any topic you want, it may be for a lesson that you've got coming up in the next couple of weeks or so, or one that you've taught recently, or whatever you want for any year group, any ability, and can you just tell us what the topic is and then just talk us through the process of, of how you put a lesson together and then how the lesson progresses, if that's okay.
1: Well, I, I kind of picked, um, I, I kind of went through my website, I've got this kind of page of teaching musings, and I've talked about kind of straight line equations. But I've picked um, what is, is one of my most downloaded resources on on TS, which is my stuff on advanced sequences. Um, so this is um, something I teach my top set year nines. Um, and it's basically, um, whereas the kind of initial sequences stuff is learning about linear sequences, like nth term of a arithmetic sequence. Um, This is kind of extending the skills to things like quadratic sequences, um, even things like geometric sequences, kind of proofs to do with sequences, um, kind of position to term versus term to term, etc. And and that's the topic. Um, So I thought I'd kind of divide it into sort of four different things how I plan it, which is kind of structure, um, kind of exposition, um, assessment and uh, differentiation.
0: Superb. That sounds great. Well, let's go for it.
1: Well, so firstly, the, with the structure, I always firstly think um, what the kind of specific learning objectives are, and that's kind of very obvious, but it's really where I think you should have to start with, with a lesson plan. Um, so with this particular topic, I, I sort of thought about all the things I wanted to cover, like um, how we go from a formula to a sequence, or how we go from a sequence to formula, and appreciating um, both ways there, um, the conversion between the two of those. Um, I wanted to sort of kind of think about the different Um, types of sequence, so like arithmetic sequence where you had first difference, the quadratic sequences where you had second difference, Um, geometric sequences, um, which you you actually cover A-level with the idea that instead of adding a constant um, difference each time, you're actually timesing by something each time, Um, and then sort of Fibonacci-like sequences as well. Uh, And also to think about um, the different ways of generating sequences. So you might have a particular position of sequence and generating the term, or you might have a a previous term or even previous terms um, and try to get the next term via some rule in that way.
0: Um, Sorry, sorry, Jamie, can I ask at this stage? So you've got the topic of sequences and these are all the essential kind of essentially skills or concepts that need to be covered. And are you... Are you writing these down and then kind of jiggling around the order to find a logical order for your sequence of lessons? Is that Exactly. The
1: way? Yeah, that's right. So I just kind of scribble the things on a piece of paper. And then from that, I then determine how do I divide these these up into my lessons? And there's usually an indication on our scheme of work of the intended amount of time to spend on a particular topic. So in this case, I think it was like five or six lessons. So I then sort of um, planned my five lessons into a more kind of holistic approach, sort of, um, the uh the, the kind of higher level structure as such um so i had a first lesson on um, linear sequences just a recap of the stuff they've done in seven year seven um and how you get from um kind of a basic formula using the term to the actual sequence because i i think with students it, it's more important first to appreciate okay i've got a formula like 3m plus 2 but what does that actually mean and how can i generate a sequence from that before they do the other way i, I think it's, it's critical to get that first
0: and can yep. I ask on on that particular lesson? Um, so you've got your year nine students, and, it, and you, you decide to do essentially a recap of of linear or arithmetic sequences. Yeah. What what are you doing there? Because I'm assuming quite a lot of your students are going to have remembered that from year seven or year eight and, and be able to to do it straight off and they're good to go whereas some may have forgotten some of the the kind of key skills that, that lay behind it so how does that particular recap lesson um, shape up do you have do you have kind of a wealth of resources up your sleeve and um, ready for kids who have grasped it straight away who've remembered it straight away and then do you do a bit of small group teaching for, for the kids who haven't got it could you just just briefly because I know we're going to focus on on the kind of further sequences But I'm very interested in recap lessons because often I find they're the ones that very rarely go as you'd expect it because it's very hard. I certainly find it very hard to judge how much of that pre existing knowledge students have actually remembered. So if you could just talk us through that that recap lesson, if that's okay. Yeah, uh, sure.
1: Um, with that particular group, because they are quite high ability, it's a top set within a in a selective school. Um, I probably can sort of rely on them sort of coming to terms with it once we've gone over a few examples. Um, but with with other classes, um, I would. Um, I think it's mostly differentiating in the actual kind of worksheet itself and making sure there's plenty of questions of that easier type. Um, and then you might explore something maybe new that's not quite so critical that so that the students who do get it can go on to these other questions, um, whereas the weaker ones can do these kind of core questions that they're supposed to be uh, recapping without sort of feeling like they're missing out without doing these other type of questions. Yes. Um, I think that's one way um, in which I do it. Um, but... Uh, I also have this kind of concept of kind of checking your understanding. So once say, we've, done, we've gone through a few questions, I've maybe targeted the sort of weaker students. Um, I have these check your understanding questions where it's basically just a question or two before we get to the main exercises. where I can assess to what extent they get it. And then if I find um, that um, the weak ones haven't got it, um, then I can sort of plan accordingly or sometimes just off the cuff, really. Yes. Um, but I might, I might have an extra exercise up my sleeve or kind of print out from a textbook and such um, that, that I can get out to sort of help those individuals. And if I find that actually they do get the other understood, then I can concentrate more in the sort of new stuff as part of that lesson. Um, so with that particular lesson, it, it was a kind of recap of. Um, linear sequences but it was also uh, much to do with sort of taking a formula and generating a sequence from that um, and, and it included some simple examples but more complicated stuff as well um, that the kind of more able students can track on with while the weaker ones could sort of practice the, the, the simpler stuff.
0: I think, you're, I think you're right there, I think you've hit upon something that's, that's quite subtle but it's, it's something that I I was pretty late in my teaching career picking up on this and that's if you're doing the recap lesson on, on linear sequences and, and you find after 10-15 minutes they're a, they're a very able group and they've picked up on it, um, often my temptation would have been right okay let's let's crack on with what I'm going to do for the for the next the lesson two, let's kind of move that forward whether it be quadratic sequences or whatever. But what I particularly like about your resources and your worksheets is that there's always enough content on that given topic to stretch even the most able students and I think you may really clever use of um, UK maths challenge questions or even the Olympiad questions and the the mentoring questions from the, the maths challenge because if you take a topic like linear sequences all right you can ext- you can understand it on a very very basic level finding nth term and generating terms and so on but there's so much potential to, to stretch that and that's that's one of the many things I particularly admire about, about your lessons that all right it'll say linear sequences and there's always enough kind of meaty stuff there to get the basics done but then there's always a wealth of extension materials on that given topic so I don't need to rush forward and bring lesson two into halfway through lesson one because I have so much kind of enrichment and challenge stuff throughout it so so, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of those, the extension materials that you provide within a given topic, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, and if I was actually criticise my own worksheets, is that I that sometimes I don't have, um, whereas often with like textbooks and such, you'll have like a particular core concept and they have lots and lots of questions for um, that um, uh, practicing that particular thing, um, sometimes I might only have like a few questions like that and, and sort of go on to sort of the medium difficulty a bit too quickly, um, which is why I think some of my resources are more suited to high ability um, students, um, even though they're, they're to some extent differentiated within the worksheet. Um, and that's something that I do. I'm um, trying to do more, having more kind of core questions there, and sort of practicing that particular technique rather than thinking, oh, they've done three of them. Let's yes. move on to the harder stuff.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> got it. Right, well, right, fantastic. So we've got the we've got the. Let's assume you've got the the structure and the order of the that you're going to teach the the sequence of lessons for four sequences in this case. And um, what happens next in your planning process? Um, so then I sort of think about
1: what I do within each particular lesson. Um, so I might, for example, have um, a starter problem. I, mi- I might, often I, I don't always launch straight into the starter, but I might just have a couple of minutes where I sort of explain the very minimum amount of theory I can to allow them to access that starter. Um, so, for example, w- within that, that sequences resource, um, I wanted to do um, a group activity on um, describing sequences using term to term and uh, position to term formulae. So I kind of just briefly just described the differences between the two and some examples. And then I let them kind of work in in groups or pairs um, with a variety of different um, sequences um, there's like one that's arithmetic, there's one that's geometric, there's one, this is a Fibonacci sequence. And then for each of those, they had to sort of um, kind of experiment to see if they could find, without using any kind of methodical techniques that we've we covered yet, but just sort of they could experiment to see if they could find a formula for each of those a position to term and a term to term one. Um, and the, 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 one of them a bit of a joke because the Fibonacci sequence, for example, the term to term form is quite simple. So, yeah. well, <laughs> the current term is the, the previous term plus the one before that. Um, but the, the position to term uh, sequence is, is very complicated. It makes use of um, the golden ratio, um, phi. Um, and it was just there as a kind of joke for them sort of realise that actually um, it's, it's easier to have a kind of term-to-term recurrence rather than a position-to-term formula sometimes. Nice. Um, and it's just kind of given a sense of um, the kind of bigger picture, that they're, they're seeing all these different types of sequences, some which they'll explore, explore late in their school life, um, and these two different techniques, techniques of um, finding a formula for a sequence and comparing those and making these sort of bridges between them.
0: And can I just just interject at this stage? Because again, I think there's there's something interesting going on here. Um, obviously, with with changes to the new GCSE, we'll, we'll get um, occurrences of uh, basic geometric series, uh, sequences and, and Fibonacci sequences finding their way in in there. But I'm guessing that you're not afraid to almost give them a teaser of some of the things that they're going to experience at A-level and and further maths and so on. Would it it be fair to say that you're certainly not restricting the content of your lessons to to the GCSE or whatever qualification they're studying from? You're you're seeing these lessons as serving a, a bigger purpose than that and you're not afraid to bring in Ideas and concepts and materials that may not be uh, relevant to the qualification that they're studying now, but will just show them the kind of wider picture and, and engage them and show them the journey that the mathematical journey they'll be going on for the next few years.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. I and mean, it's sometimes the case that um, if there is some kind of content that they're going to be exploring later, that, um, as you say, I might give them a tease of it for the purposes of them to help the kind of see the current maths they're doing in the kind of broader picture of things, and um, they have a sense of where it fits in, but without actually sort of going down, drilling down into the detail on, on what they, the, the kind of questions they, that they, what well, the methods for the questions they would have to solve on that topic.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Okay, so we're we're in we're in the midst of the sequence lesson, and we're looking at position to term, turn to term rules. And you say the students are working in in groups. Um, what? How long's that particular activity lasting uh, for? And how are you how are you kind of judging that it's the time to put an end to that particular activity and move on to the next stage of the lesson?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so I would probably um for that activity, I'm trying to remember back. Um, I'd think about maybe uh, 15 minutes on that at most. Um, with that particular activity, um, their navel bunch. Um, And the way I judge is really to, um, I kind of obviously circulate round. um, And I don't sort of finish when everyone's finished because otherwise there's going to be people twiddling their thumbs. But then also I don't finish when someone's finished, one particular person's finished. I kind of generally wait until um, most groups have got the majority of the questions. and then obviously go through the answers. So if there's a few that they haven't managed to do, that we, they can still uh, kind of benefit from seeing the solution to that.
0: Got it, got it. So what, what happens next, Jamie, in that particular lesson?
1: Um, so then, I sort of usually have a kind of more teacher-led kind of dialogue section of the lesson, um, but but trying to have um, dialogue with the students. So a kind of mixture of open and closed questions, a bit of me kind of talking, showing a method, and sort of asking students questions: Why are we doing this? Etc. Um, to kind of explore the topic. Um, yeah. So what you'd obviously usually find um, in a lesson.
0: Got it. And is the, again, this is just an area that particularly interests me. Is this what you'd call the exposition part of the lesson? Am I right there?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the exposition.
0: And is that, um, when you're questioning the students, um, is there a lot of, is it a mixture of one-to-one questioning, whole class questioning, and when you ask a question, um, do the kids know who's going to be asked to answer it? Can you just talk us through your your kind of approach to questioning during this exposition uh, phase of the lesson?
1: Um, Well it's, in terms of who I pick, they they don't know in advance, and and, um, I sometimes I don't know in advance who I'm going to pick. and I, I do, I kind of try to target a mixture of abilities. So if it's a kind of really open question, um, then I, I might, um, if, if there's a kind of very able student with their hand up, then I, I will let them answer. Um, but certainly, if it's a more core question, um, I would generally try to target the weakest student and kind of make sure I kind of go around um, all of them. Sometimes I get a bit fed up. and So you always pick on me. Uh, it obviously, it has, has some um, intent.
0: And there's one thing I'd just like to pick up on, on this, this exposition phase, and it may mean a temporary departure from, from talking about sequences, but one of the things you mention on your blog is that you, you don't like the use of gimmicks during this exposition phase, and, and um you you mentioned the example of foil for, for expanding double brackets as one particular one. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more um, about the use of gimmicks and perhaps, perhaps name some that you're not a big fan of and, and what you prefer to use instead.
1: Sure. Um, well, what I generally try to do with the exposition is to reduce things um, to the kind of minimum amount they need to, um, minimum stuff they need to remember to to appreciate the topic. And I don't, by that, I don't mean sort of um, cover as little ground as possible. Actually, I often try to cover more ground than they actually need to know. But to somehow think about how I can explain it. So there's... A little of a, me- a li- as little of a method as possible, like a, a kind of clearly defined sequence of steps as such and, and actually in some topics that is more applicable, but with other stuff with sequences, um, I want them to actually for example if they 're trying to find the um, the nth term of arithmetic sequence. Um, I don't want them to sort of think, oh, I find the first difference, put it on front, the n, and then sort of, and some method based on that. I, I want them to actually think about, okay, I've got this part of the formula so far, um... What sequence would it give me? How can I adjust that? And, and if I make the method as generic as possible, then they can sort of see how they can apply it to um, other types of sequences or kind of more complex questions that they might not have seen before, these kind of problem-solving, kind of UKMT problems, um, and, and approach those a bit um, with a bit more confidence. Um, so you're asking, for example, uh, what pati- particular teaching gimmicks I don't like. So FOIL is one of them, um, and the reason I don't like it is that because... Um. A, it advocates a particular order, and I don't think the order in which you expand it is, is that important. Um, really, the, the important principle there is that you're, doing, uh, you're choosing each thing from the first bracket and each possible thing from the second bracket and doing each of those combinations. And i found with, with weaker students, including students outside my school who might be in a bottom set, they, they, can, they still can access that concept, and I think they remember it much better because they're not having to try and think about the specific order in which they're expanding out the these terms. And, and it, it expands to, um, for example, if you have multiple, uh, more than two things in each bracket, you could have three things in the first bracket and two terms in the second bracket and it would still work. Or you could even have sort of three brackets um, and access that. And, and by avoiding FOIL and, and this kind of more gen, sort of gen, generic principle of each thing from the first bracket times each thing from the second, they just see it much better and, and they can apply it much, much more effectively.
0: Do you mind me asking just on that one, Jamie? Just on the on the foil one in particular, and then obviously in um, the new GCSE, we'll have the potential to to expand triple brackets and so on. So I think this is quite a, a pertinent topic. How 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 would you be setting that out? How would you be setting out the expansion of of two brackets and then maybe three brackets?
1: Um. Well, what I would do is I would sort of say, okay, someone just picks something from the first bracket, and we'll pick this first term, and someone picks something from the second bracket, okay, and I might draw an arc between them just to sort of show we're, we're connecting those two things, and then ask them to times together the two terms and sort of write that on the board, and ask someone else, we'll pick another two combination of things and and um and they can sort of see that the, that the order doesn't matter and they, they see they get these four different terms and then i would then obviously do another example where there was say three terms in the first bracket and two in the second and go through the same method of getting them to pick the terms um and writing them out as, as they sort of request these particular combinations um, and i think it, it it works much better that way
0: got it fantastic well if we if we return to the exposition um with regard to sequences so yeah. um if you're not a fan of the. Cause I know this this zeroth term. Um, I've, whenever I'm I'm lucky enough to observe lessons, this yep. gets banded around a lot. And again, if yep. listeners aren't familiar with this, this is where you work out that the first difference between well, the, the the common difference between the terms, essentially subtract that from the first term, and that that becomes your number kind of banged on at the end, and then your difference goes in front of the n, and everybody's happy. You you've got your nth term rule. Um, I take it you're you're not a big fan of that. I wonder if you could, you could talk us through just a a bit more if if that's a particular gripe for you why why you don't like a gimmick in in that sense with sequences, and then if you could just go into detail about how exactly you would teach let's say nth term uh, the linear sequence um from scratch and then how would how would that the way you introduce that then generalize to say quadratics and and possibly even geometric sequences.
1: Yes, yeah, so as I as I was saying earlier, I have this kind of first lesson where we do we, we take a particular formula in terms of N um and then they have to generate a sequence from that. Um, and, and what's nice about starting with that is they can sort of see formulas which are not linear, and it doesn't present too much of a problem. If they can substitute a number into 4m plus 3 and get the first few terms, it, it's not much more for them to understand how they can put a number into some completely other type of expression, like yes. a quadratic or exponential equation, and plug it into there and see if they can get uh, these sequences. And it's quite nice because they can start to possibly identify um, kind of patterns in what they see. If I plug stuff into two to the n, what properties can I see this sequence that I get? And it kind of gives them this initial sense of, of this correspondence between different types of expressions and different formulas. Um, and then the reason I do that first is partly that when I get to the second lesson, um, where I talk about how they actually get, they're given a sequence and I have to find the formula for that, um, for, for more, more difficult types of sequence, like a quadratic sequence, um, that they can then sort of appreciate that initially it's a case of getting the first term of an expression. So if it's um, um, a linear sequence, then they do have to sort of remember they're going to have an n term, um, a, an n term, a linear term in their sequence, um, and how they get the coefficient of that. And that is something that they do actually have to remember. They see the first difference of this, yeah. and they have to have an n term with that as a coefficient. Um, and then with a quadratic sequence, they have to half that difference um, and put it in front of an n squared term. Or if it's uh, a cubic, they have to divide it uh, by six and put that on, from, uh, on front of an nq term. Um, and then, but what I think is important at that point is that they then relate it back to the first lesson. So, OK, I've got 2n squared as the initial term of my sequence. Um, well, I know how from the first lesson, how I can see what those first few terms of the sequence is. And once I write it out, they can see, oh, I might be nearly at the sequence, it kind of gives something quite similar, but I have to make this particular adjustment. Now, I I would say that there's some element of method in this, but it's as I was saying earlier, it's trying to minimise a kind of preset method as such. And I think the zeroth term does that because um, it only works, well, for the start, it only works for linear sequences. And it's something that they're not really grasping why they're doing it. Why am I finding the zeroth term? Whereas if you have this idea, okay, I've got the first term and I generate the sequence from that, it's relating to what they previously understand about generating a sequence, but then they can, more effectively apply it to a variety of different types of sequences. So they can see, uh, if they got an n-squared term, they can see it's just one less than the actual sequence they need to get. Oh, it's just going to be n-squared plus one. Um, and similarly to the exponential sequences, if they got like, I don't know, 3 to the n, and they could see, oh, well, what I need to add for the first term is 2, the second term is 4, third term is 6, oh, I see I'm going to have to add 2n. And it, it allows them to put these pieces together much more effectively
0: got it and I, th- I think what's interesting about that and th- this is something that uh, perhaps I, I would need to reflect on myself it's interesting your first lesson isn't isn't restricted to, to linear sequences y- your opening kind of activity exposes students to all sequences and is essentially a lesson in substitution banging numbers into, into expressions to generate terms of a sequence and that immediately gets them familiar with these different type of sequences and yeah. then you move kind of one by one through these types of sequences that they've already met in that first activity and and hence they uh, 're already starting to spot patterns in them, and so on I think that's that 's quite interesting in it for me again, it just reinforces how important the the order and structure of your sequence of lessons are because if you get that right, you, you 've kind of won half the battle if that makes sense
1: yeah, and I think it going going to a sort of another topic I teach uh, with straight line equations like and um, the first time I taught that as a kind of teacher trainee was. Just, it was a disaster. And it was simply because the ordering of topics across lessons, it, it was not in a good order. I think I tried to cover the whole of y Calls MX for C in the first lesson, <laughs> when really what I should have done is kind of giving them all this impression of um, what if I've got an existing equation, how do I generate points on the graph? And trying to, um, just like with sequences, where I'm trying to get this, I uh, establish this relationship between the sort of form of the sequence and the actual sequence. It's the same with straight lines. I'm 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 trying to establish this relationship between the equation of a line and the line they actually can sort of physically see um, on their axes. Um, and and it was just a disaster in that way because um, they when if you get the ordering wrong, it, it's just not scaffolded. They can't sort of see how it relates to previous things um, uh, they've done, and just that learning isn't quite so incremental in the same way. I think.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right, and that. That also leads me to a question about your, your scheme of work that you've, you've got at TIFFIN. So you mentioned that when you're putting the sequence of, of lessons together, um, you look and see you've been allocated say five hours or five lessons or, or whatever to, to teach sequences. Um, I take it from what you're saying there that your scheme of work doesn't prescribe what you do in each lesson it is it could you tell us what what actually your school or your math department scheme of work look like does it prescribe an order does it have learning objectives in there a suggested resource resources what what does you, what does your actual uh, math department scheme of work look like for something like sequences um
1: well it actually looks like what, what i've got on my on my website for the schemes of work. So it's generally just, uh, it's got a a recommended number of lessons, but it's just a list of learning objectives, the things that by the end of the topic, um, the students will be expected to understand. Um, And then it's really up to the teacher how they structure the lessons within that particular prescribed number of lessons. Um, There's often links to other resources. I think there's usually a MyMath link there. Um, There used to be actually a column for um, kind of extension, but uh, we've kind of tried to integrate that with actually the core objectives, um, because I don't want that to come some kind of like graveyard column where people don't really look at that particular column.
0: I, th- I think you're right. And again, not wanting to go too much off topic here. And um, that's one of the biggest gripes I have when I see schemes of work. And I've been guilty of this um, when putting schemes of work together. And, and that's a lovely phrase, like the graveyard column. Because it's just the kind of tag-on bit at the end. is, is oh, if, if you finish teaching the course stuff, here's a, a link to an enrich activity or something that you could have a go on. And no one ever does it. You just get through all the core stuff and, and, and you, you, you're good to go and move on to the next thing. But making those enrichments and problem-solving stuff, part of the core lesson i think is absolutely crucial now that that's that's fantastic that and um, i wonder if we could move on now then to to the assessment within the lesson so uh, let's say you've done the you, you've done the exposition side of things and let's say that you've then set the students off to to work on on one of your worksheets where they've got some core stuff and then some extension stuff later on um, how are you assessing um during during the lesson and and again feel free to take that as broad or specific as you like
1: um, well, there's a, a variety of different strategies I use. So there's kind of the obvious ones, like the, the kind of questioning and the lessons and the kind of who they're targeting and such. And that, that's obviously um, a form of assessment. Um, there's some strategies I use, um, coloured cards. So um, one thing that my boss recommended that he, he saw someone else, a teacher do, um, and I think is absolutely great, is um, for students to use the, the kind of red, orange and green cards that they have. They often have them at the back of their planner. Um, and if they don't, obviously, that's something easy to make. Um, I often ask my students to have, during the main exercise, for them to have it on their desk with green, red um, or orange, based on uh, how they're finding activity. So they're completely lost, they would have red. If they sort of get it, maybe have some misunderstandings, they would have orange. Um, and they, if they're confident with it and don't need my help at all, um, then they put it on green. And it, it just makes my life so much easier because um, I can sort of more quickly get to those students um, who need the help the most and sort of leave the kind of the, the stronger students um, be because they're, they're, they're happy with the activity.
0: And has it been, a, has that been a kind of focused effort to, to generate the culture um, within the classroom that, that means kids are happy saying, OK, I'm, I'm struggling on this? Because I'm thinking in particular, certainly if you've got a high ability um, the class, I would imagine there's um, a, a few egos in there, who and a lot of competition going on for um, kids who are getting high marks and stuff like that all the time. Um, do, do you find that that's an issue? Do you find that students sometimes are reluctant to admit that they're um, that they're finding something difficult and reluctant to put that red card um, on the table to indicate that they're struggling uh, to you? And if so, how how have you found to kind of combat that and get around that potential problem?
1: Sure. Um, I think actually that's where the orange colour comes in handy because um, if a student is, um, puts orange, it's sometimes actually code for red. Yes. Um, and they, if, they, if they completely didn't get it, they wouldn't put green up. Um, but they might put orange because they yes. don't want to seem like, oh, I don't want red. Um, but that, that's fine because I'll, I'll come visit their desk anyway. Um, and I think the orange card sort of gets around that problem. Um, but I think actually with, with my students that. Generally, if students don't get it, there, there's some students in particular that I, I'm, I always say it kind of parenting to their parents. Like, it's really great that when he doesn't get something that he, he sort of puts his hand up or, or, or says during an activity he doesn't get it and, and asks for help. Um, and I think generally there's a culture where students don't mind if others can sort of see that they haven't completely um, got it. But you, you're right. There is, there is some risk of it. Um, and I think that that's where the, the kind of orange colour comes into handy, because um, if they're stuck, they will, but they don't want people to think they're completely stuck, then they put orange because there's, there might be less stigma attached to it.
0: Got it. And and again I just want to pick up something else that you wrote on, on your blog about this assessment part of the lesson and i just if I just re- read out as it as it's written. Um, if I was to highlight the single biggest risk in my own lessons when going into teaching um autopilot, I would I would say it's allowing the weakest students to slip under the radar and not having a full sense of what they understand at the end of the lesson. Can you just talk about how I mean it's I, I think it's fantastic when, when when teachers kind of reflect and think, all right, this this is a potential area I need to develop in my own teaching. Can you just talk through, um, possibly aside from, from the cards, any other strategies that you've used to, to stop these students who are struggling, as you say, slipping under the net? Because often when I observe lessons, it's very easy to pick up on students who are misbehaving and so on. That That's fine and most teachers pick up on that. But it's those students who are quietly struggling that I think are the hardest things to, to pick up on. It's because they, as you say, they slip under the net by their very nature, that they're not making a big song and dance about the fact that they're struggling, but they are not making in the progress that they should do. So I wonder if you could just talk about how, how you identify and, ca- and address that problem. Um, well I think there's a few
1: things to say about that. Um, I think it's partly a, a case of obviously knowing the, 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 who the, the kind of weaker students are and what, what topics they struggle with. Um, so you have that kind of sense even if you don't have the, those cards out that you know what particular students to visit. Um, and. Um, and, and sometimes it's a case that when I made that comment, it, it's sometimes a case that um, I didn't check up on that student regularly enough because I sort of forgot, or maybe I was just feeling particularly tired because it's a <laughs> yeah. day, and, and sort of hadn't hadn't made enough of an effort to kind of systematically go around um, all the kind of students who are struggling and me- struggling and making sh- making sure um, that um, they've got it. Uh, and sometimes it's a case that um, that um, they they haven't got it um and sort of you'll help them with a particular question and they say oh i, I get it now and you sort of ask them a the question they seem to get it then you kind of come back like 10 minutes later and, and they're still struggling with, with, with some of the key concepts um and that and that's where i feel particularly guilty that sort of maybe i i could have been doing more that um that's um maybe if i just had a, a kind of a portion of the lesson where like with these kind of test your understanding questions just a bit more of an extended kind of period of that to, to actually really make sure that everyone gets it, um, one way I, I sometimes try to make sure that they have got the questions is um, well obviously many whiteboards um, which I, I I actually just due to practical reasons and the kind of making sure you 've got a complete set and the pens um, ju- just due to practical reasons often don 't use but um, I sometimes use um, or what 's quite similar to your site diagnostic questions, where um, you have um, a question with four different options, um, and again they can use the coloured cards at the back of their diaries um, to sort of vote on a particular option. Um, and I always make sure that um, they keep their cards on their desk hidden from the other students, so they can't try and copy someone else. Um, and one particular technique that I picked up from um, actually when I was um, observing um a trainee teacher and they they were actually being visited by the external tutor and they sort of they had a kind of blank piece of paper in their hand and they they folded it in four um and they just said there we go there's four assessment for learning opportunities um and it's kind of similar to what i was talking about with these questions and the kind of four different options but um actually writing it on on the card so um There's kind of less possibility of them cheating, but also if they weren't multiple choice, um, then you can kind of extend it to questions like that, Um, and and that has worked very effectively, I found.
0: Fantastic. Can I ask? Before we get on to, I certainly want to talk about differentiation a a bit more and also dig a little bit more into assessment, but I just wonder if you could just um, wrap this sequence lesson up for us. So if if I'm right in saying we've we've had a kind of little activity at the start, then we've had some exposition, then we've had um, a worksheet that has a kind of skill-based questions on but also moves into extension um, questions. What happens then? Are you, something as simple as are you projecting the answers up? I'm on the board at the end, and how does the uh, lesson conclude? Is there, is there a plenary in there? Is there exit tickets? Is there an open-ended question at the end? Well, we'll just talk us through the end of your lesson, please, Jamie.
1: Sure. Um, in terms of kind of revealing answers, what I generally try to do with my worksheets is the, the, the questions are always in the slides, and I have these. Um, anyone who's familiar with my resources, when I have, I have these green question boxes like everywhere.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, so, well, see and what's
1: nice about that is you can reveal a particular answer without it being in a particular sequence. If I want to reveal like, the fifth answer on the page, I can do so without having to reveal the other ones. Um, and I actually do that rather than sort of all at the end. I reveal that kind of bit by bit. So I kind of kind of circulate, see where students are up to. Um, and that's just so I can avoid revealing answers before students have an opportunity to do them. Because obviously the risk is that they then just copy down yes. the answer from the screen. Uh, something I'm always conscious of. Um, and um, I think it's nicer because you can sort students can assess their um, a learning, their own learning throughout the lesson more effectively rather than uh, it all being kind of contingent on the, 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 the end of the lesson where, oh, I've got all these questions wrong. Um, I don't have any opportunity to then sort of get subsequent questions
0: right. Can I ask a question just on that actually because I, I, I absolutely, I'm absolutely, i obsessed with your green boxes and my, my students are as well and w- one thing I like because PowerPoint has a very bad name um, in teaching and I think PowerPoint can be used absolutely horrendously and um, when it's used badly it's uh, again it's just my own personal opinion it's when a teacher has um, decided to write a worked example to a question step by step line by line in a very rigid way um, and then So they'll put, let's take a sequences question up, something like that. Let's say we have, and this may be a bad example, but let's say we have some kind of problem-solving question on quadratic sequences, say. Um, And the question's up there, and um, they ask it to the students, and then the student says, right, well, I'd do this step first. And it isn't quite what the teacher had in mind, but the teacher's already pre-written their explanation on PowerPoint, using equation editor or whatever. And then the teacher has that awkward one moment where they've got to say, all right, well, I hear what you're saying, but yeah, everybody just look at my method, because this is the way I've pre-planned. It, and it just reduces all flexibility and stuff in the lesson it is a disaster. But what I what I like about uh, your powerpoints is there's very little um kind of worked methods if they, if that makes sense and certainly for the answers you are just actually revealing the answers under that green box. There's no indication of how to get to the answers and I see that very much as a strength. But I'm wondering from a practical point of view do you have another like non interactive whiteboard in your classroom, where if you bang an answer up and half your kids have got it right and half your kids have got it wrong, how are you then going through how to actually get to that answer?
1: Yeah, well, I, I do. I've got two uh, normal whiteboards um, either side of my smart board. Uh, and I should point out that actually, um, that I, I do more, even though a lot of the is, exposition is in the slides, that I do. Some often write the method up on the board and some of that exposition in the slides is actually more for the benefit of students who might be accessing the slides later yes. or or other teachers accessing it um, who want to see how I've, I've done, I've, I've approached a particular question. Um, and I do try and structure the, those kind of exposition slides in such a way that um, it's... Uh, I don't know, it kind of keeps some of the underlying detail away or, or perhaps the underlying detail is kind of like a, a box of like um, bro notes or something that flashes up to the side, um, a particular note about the method um, that only flashes up once they sort of reveal the kind of next stage um, part of the answer as such. Um, so I kind of try to abstract some of that away or, or I do have that detail of the method there, but I sort of try to think about how I can sort of hide that way so that when I'm teaching it, um, it's, it's kind of kept as fluid as possible. Yeah. Um, so I, I often do that work on the board, um, and try it. And, and, and I think it's a case of making sure you interact with the students. Well, who've got a different method to this question? Um, uh, how did you do this? Why are we doing this? Um, and, and just making sure it's as, as fluid as possible rather than kind of rigid step, step, step.
0: Got it. Fantastic. And, and what about the actual end of the lesson then? So we've, we've revealed answers and so on. Um, is, oh, is, there a, is it a case of um, hands up who got that question right or hands up if you got seven out of ten or whatever? Are you doing a little bit of assessments um, after you've um, revealed some of the answers? And then what actually happens at the very end of the lesson?
1: Um, well, this is possibly something where um, maybe I, I don't do so well. I, with, with the case of plenaries... Um, Sometimes it's the case. I don't, I don't think every lesson needs a plenary. It's sometimes a case that I've been circulating quite a lot. Um, I know the extent to which students have got it. And sometimes I think it is a case that actually um, I want to maximise the time they're spending of independent exercises. And as long as I'm making sure that I, I know where every student is at, I, I don't think you necessarily need the plenary. Um, But sometimes as a case of the plenary is, um, okay, some of those final answers, um, I'll pick particular, final questions, I'll I'll pick some particular questions, maybe later on the exercise, a few um, kind of easier ones, medium ones, hard ones. Um, And then I'll ask particular students um, what answer they got and how they got that answer. And, And that's probably my staple in terms of what I would most often do. Um, at the end of my lesson. Um, I've used exit cards in the past um, and I I think it's absolutely great. It just generates a lot of work. (laughs) Um, But I I think it's an absolutely brilliant um, way of seeing exactly where the students are at.
0: Got it. Fantastic. And and can I ask, yeah, let's move on to the kind of fourth uh, part of your your planning process and that's differentiation because this is a topic I've been obsessed with for years. So just just talk us through your your thoughts on on differentiation and how you build that into the planning of of your lesson then I'm just just then I'm going to just dig a little bit deeper on that
1: um well well, first to say I think I mentioned this on my blog is that um uh this this phrase kind of all learners should most learners should some learners should I absolutely hate that I, I, I hate that division I think it's really kind of two things that um One, things that sort of everyone should understand. And and that's the kind of core part of the lesson. And then some kind of stretch objectives. And I I think it's just nicer to think of it like that, rather than um, there's certain thing, core things that um, the weaker learners might not access. I I don't. And I know it's sort of it's easy for me to say as a grammar school teacher um, that, but I kind of feel like it should really be um well if i've got these kind of learning objectives i want to make sure and the core learning objectives i want everyone to understand that and it's a case of planning in such a way that you make that explanation as accessible as possible to everyone um rather than sort of differentiate between okay they get some of the core objectives or they might just get some of the basic objectives um but not all of the core ones um i don't really like that but i do think there is obviously a case where Okay, you've got some stretch objectives where your high ability learners have these extra objectives or extra types of problems that you want them to be able to do.
0: Got it, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about support. And I know possibly you might not. I mean, this is me being a big kind of generalised cliche here, but maybe in the school you're in, you don't encounter this problem all that often. But if you've if you've if you've differentiated for for the high achievers and and with your with your excellent stretch questions and so on, do you plan? for that possibility that students aren't going to get it. And I know you mentioned you've got the kind of skill based questions that to check your understanding questions. Do you plan for what happens when kids don't get those right?
1: Um, honestly, no, <laughs> I think it's um, I think if they don't get it, I think it's really at that point I have to be flexible um, uh, as a teacher and sort of think, OK, these particular individuals haven't got it. What do I do? Uh, and it's a bit more ad hoc, I think. Um, and um, it might be um, kind of in, uh, one-to-one support as such. Um, but I think if those particular things like check your understanding and, and stuff um, fail, well, the, the whole reason that that's there is part of my lesson is that I can sort of say, OK, uh, do they get it or don't they get it? If they don't get it, then I can sort of plan accordingly based on that. Uh, and I often hope that actually they do do pretty much get it um, and I can sort of continue um so I admit that I, I don't have a often have a planned backup strategy as such but um I think I would I'd, I'd kind of try to do it organically as such as as the problem comes up
0: got it and I, I think also I, again I, I don't know if this is going to come out right or not but I think there's another subtle bit of differentiation that I, I think is quite hard to hard to get right and I just wonder what your take on this is and that's you've got some students who will um, access your, your, the kind of check your understanding question and, and be fine with that. And you've got some students who will um, get that, nail that bit, move on to your extension your stretch questions and nail those as well. But I'm assuming there's kind of a cohort of students who will get the check your understanding bit and then just need that extra little bit of help and support. To, to access the, the stretch and challenge style questions, it can, almost kind of like a middle group of students who are, who are very good at the, the kind of basics but not quite, a, not quite good enough or able to access the stretch things and I wonder is that something you encounter and, and how do you differentiate so to give support to those students to, to access those higher level skills? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: So what I think I'd probably do most of the time is um, if there's a particular a kind of question that's sort of starting to get into the harder ones, that sort of um, some of the medium ability students kind of approach me and say, I, I don't quite know how to do that. Can you help? Um, sometimes, OK, so I, I would help that particular individual. But if I noticed that uh, multiple people have asked that, that, that same question, I'd often sometimes get the entire class's attention, Uh, And say, okay, this question, some of you might have got to it, some of you might not. Um, Like, what kind of particular technique might be helpful for this particular question? And then sort of going through it with the whole class.
0: And then my hope
1: is that, okay, if they do get that, then they will, that bridges the gap between the sort of easier questions and the harder questions
0: got it fantastic and I wonder can I ask um, we're going to talk about less successful lessons in a second but I just wanted to ask you a question about technology so um, obviously you've got all your lessons planned on PowerPoint and as do I and as, as I've said I'm a big PowerPoint advocate when it when it's used uh, correctly um, do you use, make use of any other technology um, in your lessons and I'm thinking in particular of um, whether it be kind of voting software or maybe it's different websites whether it's desmos or Wolfram Alpha or anything like that uh, what, what other technology um, may be used in your lessons since Jamie. Um well
1: this might surprise some people because I I people think of me as quite a technical person um but um, this is something I'm not particularly um, good at. Now, something I do use all the time is Wolfram Alpha. Um, and students find it really is such an amazing tool because yes. people just think it's just you type solve this equation and it kind of spits out an answer. But there's so many different types of questions it can deal with. Like with sequences, for example, you could type in the kind of first few terms of a sequence and then it would give you possible matching sequences um, and kind of continue that sequence in that way. Um, and, I, I, and particularly with... Um, uh, in, in terms of some of my enrichment clubs and stuff particularly with the sick formers um, I found that particularly valuable like some of the graph sketching tools on that as well um, and I think that that's the one thing I, I particularly use all the time in terms of voting software and such um, I'm, I'm really bad I, I'm not particularly <laughs> up with many of these technologies which are around but Wolfram Alpha absolutely brilliant and I highly recommend it to all teachers
0: And what about things like a different style of of lesson resources, whether it be jigsaws or mysteries or card sorts or treasure hunts and so on? What's what's your take on those?
1: Um, Yeah. Now, I I do try to do um, uh, have as much variety um, as possible. Um, And and sometimes maybe I do wonder if I don't have enough variety, but. with, for example, the, um, the sequences lessons, with those five lessons I've planned, like the fourth lesson I've just written here in GataBest is activity. And, um, and that's a, one thing I do, which I call a levelled activity. Um, and, and by levelling, I mean that they sort of have level one, which is not the curriculum level, but um, the sort of starter level where they're the kind of core questions that I want to make sure that all students can do. Um, and then, um, if they've managed to complete those generally for the, the level one questions i have the the answers available somewhere in the classroom maybe the front and i allow them to kind of go to the front of the classroom check their answers and then they request level two um, and level two are sort of maybe slightly more trickier questions uh the kind of maybe the hardest questions they might find on a normal assessment um and then they 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 have to check those questions with me before they're allowed to progress onto level three um which are, are kind of much more difficult um, now i have a number of those kind of level activities for um some, some of the topics. And, and in fact, on my website, if you go to sort of lesson ideas, um, it automatically picks up all the uh, resources which have a file with kind of uh, leveled activity in it. Um, uh, so that's that's one thing I do. Um, I, I do have some card sorts, which I use um, and, um, and find they work very effectively. Um, I What else do I use? Um, I have... Um, I've used treasure hunts in the past actually, Uh, in fact it was one of my two observed lessons when I had my my kind of final externally observed lessons um, at the end of my training year Um, and it was a kind of treasure hunt on the kind of combinatorics and such Um, and the idea there is that students have, they might start a different um, kind of question kind of dotted around the classroom and then they kind of solve that question and that kind of directs them to the next clue around the classroom and such. Um, in fact, for when I had a, a year seven form group, I did one on a kind of school-wide basis. So um, I, they, they actually told them, um, gave them a clue to where the next clue was, and they had to find it in the school. And, and students really um, enjoy this,
0: I think. Nice. Fantastic. And I just before we uh, take a, a kind of a walk on the dark side by looking at a, a less successful lesson that you dealing with, but I wonder if I could ask you... Um, do you, have, do you have like a, a first lesson that you like to do with a class to kind of hook them in at the start and, and set the tone for the year? And this may be with a, a specific year group or maybe, you know, to take it as generally or specifically as you like. But I'm, I'm I'm always fascinated by first lessons that the teachers deliver. Do you dive straight into the scheme of work or do you have a, a kind of lesson that you, you like to wheel out that kind of sets the tone for the year, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. Um. Well, uh, within the first lesson, I I do generally dive into the the kind of scheme of work. However, the the first sort of um, 10, 15 minutes is is maybe um, a bit of a kind of introduction. So I usually give some kind of fun facts about me, uh, about my kind of life and stuff, just to kind of um, break the ice. um, Then sort of lay out my expectations in terms of kind of the presentation of the book, their behavior, etc. And that's usually how I would have the first half of my first lesson. But I must admit, I don't generally. um, I think I've used a four fours activity before. um, And I think I've I've actually got that somewhere on my website. Um, But in general, um, except I'm trying to remember what I did with year seven, but in general, um, I would spend the second half of the lesson just starting uh, the scheme of work.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Well, I wonder if now if we can turn our, turn our attention Jay, to a lesson that you've taught that, that hasn't gone so well. And I wonder if you could just describe it to us as, in as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing. And often it can be a, a painful experience thinking about bad lessons. And more specifically, why did it not go so well and, and what did you learn from it?
1: Um, well, I've, I've picked an example from um, this year, in fact, just a more recent one. Um, it was one of my year seven lessons and they, they'd already covered this, the kind of concept of lowest common multiple, highest common factor. And most of them were fine with that. Um, but then I sort of tried to experiment with this extension lesson on, on um, uh in fact two lessons on applications um, of prime factorization so um, they'd use the prime factorization to find the lowest common factor and the the lowest common multiple and highest common factor and i was trying to sort of see there's um, other ways in which they can appreciate how we could use that things like kind of the number factors um, of a number um, and like how you identify based on the prime factorization when the number is square um, Etc. And, and what I found is um, in those two lessons, the first lesson, I tried to cover way too much content, um, and even though there was some check your understanding, like I, there was so much theory covered that we didn't really have time, any time for sort of independent exercises. Um, and then I found when I got to the second lesson and we sort of, um, after some recap, sort of dived in. Um, like there was with those coloured cards I mentioned before, there's a wave of red, and, and <laughs> literally like just over half the class with these red class uh, with these red cards, and I thought, oh my god, and <laughs> it was, um, and realised that it was a bit of a disaster in how i would try to convey it. Um, and I think if I was sort of thinking what went wrong, I think there's three reasons what went wrong. Uh, firstly, it was badly scaffolded, um, so I think they hadn't really. Before I got onto to those particular concepts, I really need to give them more sense of um, containment. And what I mean by that is if they had, for example, uh, like two cubes times three as a prime factorization, they would realize that sort of two squared is a factor of that. It kind of goes into that and sort of building up this sense of kind of buckets of factors, that if I have two cubes times three, that I've got three twos available and a three, so I can see that if I want to see if two squares are a factor, well, I've got enough twos in my bucket. Yes. Um, and, and that's sort of a, uh, some imagery I've kind of thought about since um, that I wish I'd done at the time. And I really wish I'd kind of built up that sense, even before they did how they can use prime factorizations for lowest common multiple and highest common factor, that I'd done that first so, that sh- so there was better scaffolded and in fact they came out in a later test with their um one of their landmark assessments their core assessments at the end of the half term um there was this question where they had different prime factorizations and they had um different properties that they had to draw lines to match them to and i think there was one one of the harder ones was like um is divisible where 24 um, and, all, and most students got that wrong because they didn't realise they had to actually think about the prime factorization of 24 and therefore spot when that was a fact of something. So I kind of wish I'd, I'd scaffold it much better. Um, the second reason why it, why it went wrong is the lesson was badly structured. So um, I talked about earlier about how I tried to cover too much. Um, the first lesson was mostly me talking. Um, and then. The trouble is and when they got to the second lesson they'd forgotten everything they'd done the first because <laughs> yeah. they had they weren't able to practice that and i think that the last reason it was badly differentiated so um the questions were inaccessible to the sort of low attainers in the class um and it's quite difficult sometimes knowing how to do um, a sort of enrichment lesson rather than a lesson which has some enrichment in yes um and i i think i planned I, I, I judged that one wrong in that particular case, So maybe some of this stuff should be integrated as part of another lesson for the high attainers, that actually some of these concepts were a bit advanced for low attainers. They didn't actually need to know them as kind of core objectives as such.
0: Um, and can I ask, when you saw this sea of red um, in front of you, how did you react to that?
1: Um I, I basically, I, I pretty much immediately got the whole class back together and sort of helped them with, um, uh, I tried to come up with a question similar to the first few. Um, and then they then were able to do some of those earliest questions. But part of the problem was there wasn't enough easier questions on the exercise. Yes. Um, so it meant as soon as they had done those, those, those few easier ones, they got to these kind of UKMT questions that they just <laughs> couldn't do. Um, and and yeah, yeah, it was um, I, I sort of tried to help. But um, overall, it was a failure. Um, and that's something um, that when I teach at Next Young, I completely restructured that part of um, sort of number theory so that they can access that much
0: more. And can I ask that Um because i'm i'm often like that when i have a disastrous lesson the first thing i think is i can't wait to do that again either like a i wish i could go back in time and and redo it or b i wish it would hurry up to the next time i I could teach it again so i I could get it right um are you gonna wait until next year to replan that lesson or have you already kind of made a few notes now on where it went wrong so you you're in in a better position to remember why it went wrong if that makes sense
1: um well i I generally um (laughs) my most vivid memories are when lessons went wrong (laughs) rather and then write so um, but I have um, I would probably do it over the summer holiday when I want to kind of um, change resources Um, sometimes I do it over the summer holiday sometimes I do it a few weeks in advance of teaching that lesson again Um, sometimes I actually create a to-do file so just a, a simple text file within my kind of number theory folder which says um uh, this didn't go so well. Change this. There's a kind of slight problem here, etc. Um, and that's just a kind of mental reminder of, of the, the the kind of new shy, the more minute details of what went wrong.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Um, can I ask about marking, Jamie? what What's your What's your department's policy on marking, and, and how do you how do you find the process of marking yourself as a teacher?
1: Um, this may come as a, come as a shock, but the, the there's only requirement to take in books um, twice a half term for each class. Um, so often with the marking, um, it's done in such a way that um, uh, we would um, get them to, to, to kind of mark it themselves, self-mark and such. Um, and obviously we're kind of circulating to check their books during the lesson. But in terms of actually formal marking of their books, um, I do it twice per half term for each class, so the marking load is a bit lighter than than um, other schools. Um, but I do use um, with I do use other ways to kind of get some assessment data. So I have this system called um, QQQs, which stands for quite quick quizzles, um, and that's kind of like it's usually I like eight questions which I have maybe at the sort of second half of the lesson and, and always at the end of the topic um, where um, they kind of uh, there's mostly kind of core understanding questions, a few kind of harder ones. Um, and then I I do – I sometimes mark them myself um, if I don't want them to cheat um, or I, I get them to sort of – I swap them around with someone kind of not ne- necessarily next to them um, but someone kind of around the classroom and get them to mark. Um, and then I take in those marks and I have a kind of spreadsheet which sort of maintains a leaderboard, um, etc. cetera. Um, but I find um, – I think I think that there's one of your podcasts you were just, um, from previously when you were talking about marking um, and the idea sort of of this kind of lots of kind of verbal feedback and I find sometimes it, it's helpful the, the the kind of well written feedback in in the the books I mean um, and I I find it sometimes helpful with specific aspects of their uh, presentation as such um, but um, I think with um, yeah, I think actually, really, when it comes to more subject specific stuff, um, uh, like they misunderstand a particular concept, that, that's something um, that I would like to pick up a bit better and monitor um, before it gets to the test. And, that, and that's partly why I'm, I'm developing a system, which I'll, I'll talk about later, to kind of more effectively track uh, where their key, uh, a more detailed view of where their misunderstandings lie. Um, but marking, yeah, it, it's something um, that i probably do less than other teachers and, and I, I concentrate more of my time um on the kind of planning of the lessons and producing my own resources
0: as it should be no that's that's fantastic super well i want to move now to a related concept and that that's the idea of work-life balance if such a thing exists because um quite a few questions um on twitter um for you have been just uh and I, I get this a fair bit myself, as I'm sure other um, teachers who have websites and blogs do. Just, just w- where do you find the time? So, uh, can you just talk, talk, talk us through maybe like a, an average week um, in terms of what time you're getting home from from work? Um, are you working in the evenings? And, and how do you, how do you actually manage your time, Jamie?
1: Um... Good question. Um, now I'm I'm a self-confessed workaholic, so my my hours are pretty extreme. I I try to total up like how many hours I work a week once, and I, I reckon it's over eighty um, a week. It's, it's it's quite a lot. Um, I typically I, I get up, my alarm set for five twenty, um, and I'm I'm out of the house by um, uh, I've got a bus that goes at six fifteen, and I'm generally into school uh, for quarter to seven. Um, and, and our school day starts at 8.30. Um, so that gives me lots of time to kind of um, do some planning, last minute kind of printing of stuff, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I often do rely on that time in the morning where I can do some planning. And I, I think I work more effectively in the morning. I, I, I'd rather work before school um, on planning than than after school. Yes. Day. Um, now, I, I do have a bit of... Um, tutoring work so i i do tutor some evenings and, and most of my saturday um um so i i can get home at like sort of 8 p.m each evening so it's um it's uh, they're long days and and i must admit that um yeah my work-life balance is, is kind of non-existent to be honest um i think i will try to um scale it down uh, across the next few years to try and kind of maintain that a bit more um but it, it's something that i don't get quite right but it's something that bothers doesn't really bother me that much i I don't mind that i'm kind of working quite extreme hours um and i kind of find that kind of quite exhilarating maybe maybe it's a kind of compulsive trait of mine but um i i i'm a bit of a workaholic and, and i actually like being busy and and kind of getting really stuck into my job
0: um, how do the hours compare to your your previous life um, in the investment bank Jamie Is it a similar thing similar amount of hours
1: uh, no it's more extreme now um so when I was working for this investment bank i i think i'd generally get in for uh eight thirty sorry eight thirty i've sometimes go to the gym beforehand um and I would generally leave the office at six um and that was actually quite untypical um A lot of my colleagues were staying longer to kind of like seven and beyond um and um but then when you when you add because it used to take me an hour to commute into work. because I, yes. I sort of lived in, in near Surbiton, um, and even though like it, it's quite quick to get into London and such, like I, it would typically take me an hour to get in. Once you consider all the different forms of transport, an hour to get back. Um, and so eight eight thirty to six suddenly became like seven thirty to seven. Yes. Um, and um, but the advantage there was is that at the weekend I didn't have any work yes, and was yes. completely free whereas with a teacher uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of my weekends are taken up and, and a lot of my, my um, summer holidays so um, it's, it's a slightly different there's, at least the hours were long before but um, when I wasn't working that was definitely kind of strict non-working time uh, whereas a teacher that um, the vision is slightly blurred I think
0: Got it, and I think you you sound like certainly a man who who enjoys the job, and I think I think you need to to be putting in those hours. But I wonder, um, when you're not actually working, and whether it be planning a lesson or tutoring and stuff, are, are you still thinking about school? Are you still thinking about work um, and teaching? And if so, um, are there any? St- steps that you take that you found that help you switch off that perhaps um, other teachers who, who struggle to stop thinking about work could possibly try?
1: Um, I think it's a case of staying um, on top of things because if I generally feel uh, that I'm sort of quite prepared for my lessons and such and, and, and it means I'm not stressed and it means that when I'm not actually working when I'm at the pub or in the gym or, or on my PlayStation that I can sort of switch off and not think about um, school um, I think it's really when I'm worried about something or stressed yes. about something that I'm thinking about it. Um, and it, it was the same with when I had exams as a student. Um, I remember my GCSE mocks when, when all my exams were concentrated into a very small period of time. I like, nearly had a nervous breakdown. I just couldn't cope because I couldn't, keep, couldn't revise everything. I couldn't keep on top of it. And then when I got to my GCSEs, it felt like a relative breeze because exams were spaced out. I knew I'd revise really hard and, and therefore it wasn't stressful when I, I wasn't uh, working. I, I could sort of enjoy my time as such. So I, I think it's just the kind of sense of keeping on top of things that, that, that's the most important uh, for being able to switch off effectively.
0: Good. That's very very sound advice. Perfect. Well, I want to move now to um, a topic, well, a kind of concept, I guess you'd call it, that that you've written about on your blog and certainly one that interests me a lot. And that's the idea of internalising mathematics. And and you state that students' understanding of mathematics and their ability to further apply it is maximised when they're able to effectively internalise it, i.e. to picture it. Now, I wonder if you could just um, give us a few examples um, to illustrate what you mean by that.
1: Absolutely. So to take the kind of most basic one, um, appreciation of negative numbers. Um, so what I've seen, particularly when I've, I've tutored, that, that where students get it wrong is they don't sort of picture that initial number they have as a position on a number line. And then think, well, if I'm subtracting six, et cetera, that they're moving across that number line. And I, I think it's it's absolutely critical for them to picture it rather than sort of remember, they, they try to invent rules they try to think oh that's negative and that's negative so i must get a positive even yes. though if you have a negative number and you subtract a number that it actually still is negative um, yes. so they try to invent these rules rather than sort of picturing it um, and a- another kind of simple example with with number is kind of having a sense of um, scale of numbers and i think this is uh, particularly important at primary school as well um i've often seen students um uh, primary school students who think 40% as a fraction is going to be a quarter because they sort of see the four and then they sort of put that into the fraction or something. Yes. Um, and if they were to sort of actually think, or even more extreme, like 60% is a sixth. Um, now, if they had that sense that 60% was slightly more than half and that kind of aspect of where it is on the number line, and then they also have that sense where a sixth is, well, it's actually closer to zero, where 60% is closer to one. If they built up that sense, I think they have an appreciation of, of kind of magnitude of numbers a bit more and be able to do uh, arithmetic more easily. It's the same with like units, um, like 600 grams. Well, I sort of think, well, you could divide it by a 1,000, to convert it to kilograms but if you appreciate okay well a thousand grams is a kilogram and 600 grams is sort of like a similar kind of magnitude but slightly less then they realize oh it's 0.6 kilograms but a bit less than one kilogram and building that sense of scale. I sort of talked about that bad lesson earlier with um, kind of prime factors and I think if, if they sort of were able to visualize um, prime factorization of numbers as a kind of kind of collection of those point factors in a kind of like a bucket, as such, um, that would be able to help them uh, better access. Some um, of the methods with um, angles, for example, um, the ability to see the Z ang- the, the, the z angles and the F angles, those alternate and corresponding angles um, and sort of how to help them sort of visualise it a bit better and the techniques there. So I, my strategy is that I actually say, um, OK, find those two power lines, um, identify a line that connects those two power lines and then sort of at the two ends sort of kind of shoot off either way. Um, and that sort of... Um, yeah, because I, I found in the past that they'll think that two angles are corresponding or alternate when they're not on parallel lines. And, and if they can sort of visualise that bit better, um, then they, they can uh, get it more correct, obviously. Um, another more advanced one, which I, I haven't listed on my website's example, are functions. So I think it's critical for students to appreciate functions as number machines and sort of actually visualise, OK, what's being fed into it, what's coming out of it, um, So, for example, with like f of x equals 2x minus 1, um, I've I've seen a lot of A-level students where the question is, um, what is f of x squared? Now, if they don't have a kind of full appreciation of how functions work, this kind of input, output, and sort of picturing this number machine... Um, they find that more difficult to access so, or composite functions so it may be um, combined with inverse functions so there's this particularly difficult C3 question from a few years ago where they have a combination of um, one function which is given as a graph and another function that's given as um, an equation um, and they had to solve like, I think it was fg of x equals some particular number and then if they actually picture this number machine of well I've got my input x it's been fed into f and then fed into G to give me that, out, that specified output I've got. We'll have to retrace my steps. I need to kind of do G backwards to get back to the point just after F. Oh, I've got to use my inverse function that I found in the previous part to do that.
0: And then, oh, okay,
1: I'm just after F, so I need to get back to the original uh, input. Um, I'm going to use my graph and use that backwards. If they can sort of picture those steps as kind of like number machines attached together, um, I think they can access those more difficult questions better.
0: Got it. So it's very much a, a trying to visualize as many of these concepts and get like a, a picture that the kids can relate it back to um, as opposed to kind of the abstract nature of them. Will that be a fair kind of story Yeah, I, I think approach? it is.
1: And I think there's sometimes some obvious places where there's an obvious visualization technique, like uh, vectors, for example. Obviously, they should draw a diagram and that, that will help them visualize it more. Um, I think why students find combinatorics so difficult is. Um, is they find it hard to visualise because the visualisation process is much more abstract, um, and um, and sometimes it's more it's easier said than done for to help students visualise it, uh, find some way for them to kind of see to experience that mass
0: perfect well again if we can just return to a couple of these topics in a bit more depth depth, because negative numbers is a a classic as as you've touched upon and one of the most misanswered questions on diagnostic questions as will be no surprise to anyone listening is um Negative seven take negative three, and there 's all sorts flying around with that, and like we get positive ten, we get negative ten, we get positive four negative four, and very poorly answered across all all age groups so if we t- if we take something like that, Jamie, I wonder if you could just talk us through in a bit more depth the the way that you're you're teaching that or getting the kids to visualize that and um, from the number line so yeah so it's negative negative three negative well i can't remember what i flipping said there let's let's go for <laughs> let's go for negative seven take negative three
1: um uh, i think this is actually a, a resource you featured my negative numbers and this may, may be why you featured it but the, the very first slide um it's got this number line um and there's certain kind of sums they have to do like minus three plus four or something um and then they get to click a button and then um uh, a, an arrow appears like where the initial position the minus three and then um it would kind of move up four places and now your particular could you repeat the particular example again
0: yeah if I, if I can remember it, i'm gonna i should have written it down i'm going for negative seven take negative three um
1: negative seven take away negative three um well my initial slide wouldn't cover that because they haven't initially covered the concept of um uh, of subtracting a negative as such. But I think one of the things I try to get across, which I don't, I'm not sure how much I cover in my slides, is appreciating the difference between sort of the minus symbol as a, a kind of unary op- operation, a binary operation. Now, I don't obviously use that language with the yes. students, but um, the difference between subtracting and negative. Um, so the, I, I always be very careful with my wording. that I say subtract negative blah. Um, so they can sort of try and appreciate the difference um and then and when i when i phrase I phrase it like when you subtract a negative you you can sort of add a number instead and such um So I I kind of break it down into two stages. Um, I would first get them to sort of turn subtracting negatives into an addition. And then I would go back to this kind of picturing a number line. Um, So I think it was minus seven, minus minus three, for example. They would start with a minus seven. And now they've got plus three. So they can picture the minus seven on the number line and then move three steps up in their head or on a picture, whatever, um, so they can get their answer.
0: Got it. F- fantastic. And and this this kind of leads me to a wider point that I, that I teased at the start of this because I, I, I guess I was I was kind of like you at school that I, I absolutely adored mathematics and I would happily do it for fun um, left right and centre any opportunity I got and I loved it all the all the way through through school um, and I did economics at, at university um, but still plenty plenty of maths in there and then I came into teaching and honestly I, I still remember vividly the first lesson I thought somebody had set me up it was a, a lesson on fractions, year 8 class um, comprehensive school in in just outside Liverpool and the kids were making mistakes that I I couldn't even imagine they had misconceptions that I just didn't think existed because I'd always been in top sets, Um, I'd always understood mathematics Um, my friends um, within that class had understood mathematics and my friends who weren't, weren't perhaps as good at maths as me, we didn't talk about maths so I had no way of learning about these kind of mistakes and stuff so I wonder, and it was a big shock to, to to me. It was a big shock to the system. It's, I'm in my eleventh year of teaching now, and, and and finally, I think I'm getting to to grips with. And part of it's through diagnostic questions, the kind of mistakes and, and misconceptions kids make. But the, the, what you're talking about here is is a very kind of in-depth process to thinking about how how to get students to visualize and understand topics and so on so i'm wondering where's that come from jamie is is that something that's come from just your experience working with kids and kind of spotting these misconceptions then go away and thinking how you can tackle it where have you got this appreciation for how to teach mathematics because that's very different skill to being able to do maths
1: um I, I think it's as you say it's just come from experience over the years that um where a kind of combination of my teaching at school and, and tutoring um and, and it's actually it's really helpful when when I have um like a, a low ability um, student who's in primary school that they're the, the lower than average um, and sort of and when you're in that one-on-one situation you can sort of really get to the bottom of of why are they not internalizing uh, this properly well, for example with fractions like are they sort of actually thinking about sort of the, the, what these kind of numbers are and then sort of their place their magnitude their place on the number line um, and sort of trying to picture things with like maybe the, the classic things with pizzas and such um, and I feel like that experience has helped me a lot in terms of getting to grips where how students think how they internalize it and sort of coming up with strategies to deal with that and ways to teach it
0: got it fantastic got it and if we can move to again a, a related concept now and that's that's teaching the most able students because um, this is something that is is often perceived and I I don't know if you'd agree with this and this is probably teachers around the country listening to this will will hate me even more for this but there's a definite perception that um, teaching higher ability or higher achieving students is easier than than teaching lower achieving students and I know in many schools it's seen as brilliant if you get top set year 9 and not quite so good if you get given bottom set or or middle set year 9 and I'm going to be honest I I completely agree with that I think it it is easier to, to teach higher ability students than than lower ability students but it's not necessarily easy to teach them well and I'm wondering... What have been your strategies that you've found to get the very best out of these high attaining students because, and, and I wonder if you could you could talk about how you push on the ones that, that are able and keen, but also I'm particularly interested in strategies where, that have, you found effective for students who are clearly gifted at mathematics but don't share that passion for maths that perhaps um, their, their fellow peers would do.
1: Um, yeah, well, you, first, you kind of you touched upon this idea of kind of um, it being easier to teach high ability students, and it, it is true. It's obviously true. Um, and I just remember this this comment um, a sort of teacher in our school made made a number of years ago, and they sort of made this slightly derogatory comment about me teaching a grammar school. Cause, <laughs> oh yeah, you, you need to be at a kind of really rough school um, to, uh, students there. And I, I think it's a misconception. It is true. It is easier, but as you say as well, it's. Um, it's a misconception that with um, high-ability students that it's just a case that you can give them any old teacher because they're going to understand it better. Yes. Um, and I think I, I sort of... I consider myself a teacher, but more specifically a grammar school teacher and, and sort of knowing how to sort of challenge those more able students more. And, and it's, it, it is much more difficult than I, I think people realise to kind of really get the, the best out of certain students. It, it, it can affect how you kind of completely form the syllabus um it, it affects um how you differentiate in class and the kind of clubs you do and such um and um there, there are some a lot of specialist skills i think we're dealing with the upper ability students um now now some of the i've listed a few things in terms of how you get the, the most out of them um and, and sort of why, why we've had some success in, in kind of ukmt compositions um, like one, I think, is developing a culture of success, and I think maybe it's previously the case um, that you, you get some kind of gifted students who come into the school and they sort of do well. Uh, whatever you throw at them or however much support you give them um and sort of other students who may be actually very able um would sort of see these students as being in another category and kind of feeling like they can't replicate that same kind of success they think oh i can get my a star in GCSE. I'm, I'm content with that those guys they can have their success in the olympiads um, and i think it's a case of, of, of we, we've made a big effort to try and get um, past that um, i think partly by raising the profile of these mass competitions, uh, kind of like more emails to students, um, kind of okay, maybe a segment in assembly and such, um, and um, making a much big, bigger thing about these competitions. Um, I think it eventually reaches a case where you have a kind of critical mass of, um, once you get a larger number of students doing well of these competitions, other students say, oh actually it's not just a few individuals that are doing really well, I, I can sort of share the success um, and you, you kind of develop that culture for success um, in the department. Um, so I think that that's the first thing. Um, second thing is uh, curriculum. So I kind of often feel like enrichment is sort of like a, um, a kind of an afterthought. Like it's kind of a yes. box ticking exercise where, oh, I've, I think you mentioned this earlier. Like I've got I've had my enriched lesson. Um, <laughs> I can sort of sit, sit in this departmental meeting later in the year and think, ah. Oh. Um, enrichment tick, like I've kind of done it. Um, When I think it has to be something much more systemic. It has to be something that's kind of integrated in the curriculum. Um, And one thing that um, it was really great... opportunity to be able to do is i worked with a colleague of mine and we we um completely rewrote the um, well not completely but significantly changed the year seven scheme of work and we actually had um some skill descriptors which were sort of slightly outside of the core curriculum but still related to particular topics we're covering um that were maybe would help them with um with uk the uk mathematics trust competitions so the Maths challenges and olympiads um and um it was just so nice to sort of go back from kind of a blank a blank canvas and sort of had you know, to think, uh, well, actually, we sometimes see these kind of questions Olympiad, how do I some, somehow get that into a particular lesson in a way um, that um, either is accessible to everyone or that the more able students, are, we're going to make sure that they do that particular stuff. Um, uh, and that's where I've, I've got this kind of database of uh, UKMT questions. It's about 500 pages. <laughs> I mean, it's all divided by topics. It's all the kangaroo Olympiad mass challenge questions. Um, and it's great because if i'm teaching a topic on sequences and the, and the, the fifth lesson in fact in, in those sequences lessons was sequence proofs and i can just dig into my database and i can find all the questions that have ever been, been asked in the 20 last 20 years uh, on the sequences <laughs> um and, and that's how as people might wonder how do i i i, I find so many questions yes. in my worksheet and that's how i do it i just spent an inordinate amount of time compiling this database um, and and that helps me with my the kind of planning in terms of making these resources and worksheets and such um, so that's the second thing I think um, curriculum is important it has to be uh, this enrichment has to be fully integrated rather than sort of just um, just this individual kind of lesson where you explore a particular abstract concepts and such um, and obviously that depends on the school um, a school like mine which is which is very selective um that's more that that's um i think absolutely key um i think other schools where you have less able students um that um many of these kind of stretch objectives wouldn't be uh, applicable to as many students so it might be more of something within a particular lesson extension activities and such rather than quite so much integrated um, and um C, I think, um, in terms of uh, the third thing for um, stretching students is providing resources for students to practice independently. So it's, we, we do have a number of clubs in, in the school, maths clubs. Um, I, I run the ones for the intermediate and senior and a colleague of mine, she, she runs the uh, ones for the junior years. And um, we often find it's that the best students, the ones who are getting these medals and Olympiads and stuff and book prizes, they're, they're often not the ones who are turning up to the clubs. Um, and and that's absolutely fine but it's a case of making sure that um they're getting the support in terms of resources for them to practice and i think i think that's the most important thing with with UKMT competitions that really there's certain skills that come up time and time again and if your students can practice in their own time um that's really the key for the, them getting good at these competitions uh, rather than just looking at a few sample problems in the clubs So, I think that's absolutely key. Uh, And we have, um, with this database, I've I've kind of got this form of it which I can uh, print for students and sort of, um, and those who've done particularly well or those who who look particularly promising, I'll try and get them um, a printed version um, of that. yeah, and the last thing is those clubs um so i think many schools have math clubs but i think it's important to think of the actual curriculum for them um so i might cover a particular type of question like i don't know number grids. like you have a particular structure where you have to put the numbers one to ten in such that the sum of the the numbers in each line is the same um and like we'll, we'll kind of explore some algebraic techniques of how we might tackle that so it's kind of very skills based um, often i think with enrichment it's um It's kind of seen as this sort of more abstract concept where, okay, we're doing enrichment um, rather than um, thinking about what skills you're uncovering as part of that enrichment. And I think it's really important part of both. Like you're you're giving students more generic skills to tackle um, sort of problems that are less familiar but it's also a case of giving them um, helping with strategies to tackle these harder questions and I think with with UKMT questions in particular there's lots of strategies there's lots of ways of tackling some of these particular questions.
0: Yeah and I think yeah you've, you've covered so much ground there that Hopefully, will dispel the myth that it that it, it is just a walk in the park and that the, these kids teach themselves. And a couple of the key things that you've picked up on there is 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 the the idea of a maths club. And I think I've I've been in lots of schools and visited lots of schools, and I think the average life of a maths club is about three weeks max. It tends <laughs> to get tends to get given to the NQT, the keen NQT to set up, and then a few kids come along, and then the numbers dwindle week after week, and then it silently dies dies a uh, dies a death. And I think having a curriculum for it is is absolutely key and like I'm right in saying Jamie aren't I you've, you've essentially shared all the materials that you use in, in these maths clubs um, on, on your website and I wonder if you could just just briefly uh, just to talk us through the the kind of age group of clubs that that you run and the um, and the resources that you have made available on your site for those clubs
1: yeah so, so the, the the database the full database unfortunately have been made made available yes. you have to have some competitors <laughs> of, of course however like there's some um, older kind of compilations. Um, like we Olympia questions on a particular topic, uh, which i've put on there, which is not complete theres there 's still quite some number of questions there, and there 's like cheat sheets sort of like skills and such um so it's it 's kind of like a scaled down version of this full database so um i 've divided on my enrichment page into three so there 's the uh, zeta club um, and then which is um for lower schools, so there's... And within that page, it's divided into junior, intermediate. So I've got various resources, there, compilations, which now have answers. Um, that, that was a kind of common complaint. That,
0: um, <laughs> yes.
1: They didn't have the answers, but I've now made sure that um, all the resources on there have answers at the end. Um, and um, they are only the kind of final answers. I don't actually give an explanation for those answers, partly <laughs> just from time of compiling yes. resources. But it's partly, I think, that actually if a student is looking at a source, it's better for them to sort of try and work out how they got the the correct answer um, that they've been provided with rather than being provided that method. And and then if they they can't get to it, then they sort of ask a teacher for that help. Um, So um, that's the Zeta Club. And then there's the Riemann Zeta Club, which is for sixth formers. And that's considerably more comprehensive. So there's... um, And in fact, most of those resources I've made during my teacher-trainer year. Um, So... That goes through a number of different topics like combinatorics, um, number theory, um, kind of different topics within algebra, like kind of inequalities, etc. Um, and I, what I basically did... Um, like I, I i wasn't I didn't used to be um, good at these kind of problems like I, I never even encountered Olympiad before I, I kind of started teaching at my current school um, and it was a case that I sort of when I started teaching my training year I just went through a massive load of papers um tried to sort of uh distill the kind of um, the essence of these questions and, and kind of what connects different types of questions and the, the typical typical skills needed, um, and, and then I produce these resources. So it's got um, slides on that that section of my website, and then associated worksheets which do I think mostly have full explanations for those. Um, and I know I know a lot of schools have been using those, um, and I've I've found um, that club works much more effectively. It has a slightly higher attendance, um, and I think there's been comments from kind of students who've managed to successfully get into oxford or cambridge for maths and they and um they sort of said um actually those resources um was probably the biggest contributing factor in giving me appreciation of these questions to help me with these interview questions and such so i think for those students who want to do mathematics at a higher level um i, I think these resources would be good for those So it's called the Riemann zeta club and there's a the section clearly on the enrichment page um and there is also a section for oxbridge and i've, I've got um just linked to the, the kind of past mass aptitude test papers uh and i've just recently um uh made all sorts of other resources which i didn't previously make available um which kind of goes through lots of past paper multiple choice math questions maths aptitude test questions uh, and tries to kind of distill the tips and sort of help students there because um i think um we're, when, when students come to Blythe, Oxford and Cambridge for maths, like, it's so... so for many students in many schools where they don't have the support um, or sort of teachers with the knowledge of these kind of topics, it, it's so difficult for them. Um, yes. And, and, and it's why I, I think it's important to make, make these resources available um, because it's quite... Like, the, di- the interviews are difficult, and unless you've been thinking about lots of these different types of topics quite a lot, um, it... it the, the interviews, I, I think, are very hard to access for, for, for some students at some schools, even if they have the potential to, to, to kind of get into these institutions.
0: You're absolutely right. And, and just on that, um, Oxford University were kind enough to make the um, the, the multiple choice maths aptitude, aptitude tests um, available on, on diagnostic questions. And flipping out, there are some of them, them questions. But well, what's nice about them as well is... I, it's like um, I, I, like I relate them very much to the, um, the the math challenge questions, in the sense that the the kind of concepts involved are um, accessible to to the vast majority of students, but the way they, they need to be applied and the problem solving skills involved um, and linking together different concepts are obviously that's that's where the real skill comes into play. But I, I think certainly looking at the, the the Oxford ones, they're stuff that can be dropped into your average A level lesson as as a bit of extension and stuff. They are wonderful. Wonderful yeah. questions, and and I think more teachers should be aware of them. So I'll certainly place um, place a link in the, in this part of the show notes to to your resources and also to the ones on ones on diagnostic questions. Um if we can move now, Jamie, to to the, the um, oh actually no, I was just going to ask you just one extra question. This isn't like a trick question to to try and have a pop or anything like that. So I'm, I'm genuinely interested in your answer. Um, would you would you consider working in a different type of school? Would you consider um, going to a comprehensive school, um, or or is it do you see your skill set in terms of a grammar school teacher that you've mentioned and that's what you'd like to focus on
1: um in short no (laughs) so um i um i think just my my biggest strength is sort of working with with olympiad students and such and i think if i was at a school which didn't have a kind of a good number of those it like might be the sort of one lone student in school he's like yes. absolutely gifted um i feel like some of my skill set was being wasted um and um and it's not that like with my training year like i had to obviously i was in the graduate teacher program which is now um uh, called uh, school direct and yes. um uh, one class for example i was given it was um uh, it was a bottom set year nine class a comprehensive school and um a th- a, a, every student was at least school action most of them school action plus and um and actually i really enjoyed it um it was obviously a very different experience but um i um i do i do work, enjoy working with students of other abilities as well it's just that i think if i was teaching a um a kind of mixed school like that longer term i think i'd find myself like with the kind of extension stuff I have, like, for example, the reason I, I've, I've requested to have top set year nine every year, um, and I do have low ability sets for the other uh, year groups in my school. The reason I've asked for top set year nine every year is because many my resources wouldn't be so applicable. If I was teaching bottom yes. set year nine, like, we're, we're probably not going to do a lesson on sequence proof because uh, really, uh, there's more of an emphasis on trying to make sure all of them can understand the core content. Um, and I think that's why I would I would probably always stay um at a grammar school um, because i think that's where my my skill set is most applicable
0: got it and obviously we've talked in great depth about about your lessons but i wonder if you could just briefly just comment on the difference between your your kind of lesson structure for uh, for your top set year nine compared to i don't know say say like a middle ability year seven or whatever And, and again i think this needs to be um, we need to discuss this with a, a word of caution that your your kind of middle set year seven will be possibly different to, to a lot of teachers listening to kind of middle set year seven. But I wonder how you, just just briefly, how, do you approach your lessons very, very differently? Or does the general structure of the um, kind of activity followed by the exposition, followed by the worksheet with skill-based questions and then extension material, does that structure remain true across the different abilities that you may teach?
1: Yeah. Um. So, for example, I had some um, bottom sets, kind of uh, GCC classes over the last couple of years, and um, I, I do mostly use the, the kind of... the, the key resources, the, the kind of core resources. I, I use the same stuff, and I was talking earlier about how... With my resources, I I tend to have rather than like some can do this, most can do. Yes. I just have well, all can do the core stuff, and then I've got some stretch objectives. So yes. if I kind of plan my resources, produce my resources in such a way, then I I can. I, my hope is I can use the same resources for other classes, and I generally don't change the way i i sort of explain a topic based on on the class i might explain it more succinctly like a a bit more rapidly but um i would still usually explain it in such a way because i i kind of um i I generally try to make my my explanation as accessible as possible um and it's it's a case that with those lower ability sets that they wouldn't be doing some of the, the killer questions at the um the end of my exercises and such um But, um, and, and sometimes it'd be a case that, um, I might spend another lesson on a topic where I wouldn't with a top set, um, where they get to just practice more questions and such and consolidate that. I I think that would be where the key difference is. But, um, yeah, so, but, but in terms of actually how I teach a topic, I would usually teach it in the same way
0: got it fantastic thank you well now I'd just like to move on to the the whole process of creating resources because obviously you're a prolific resource creator and for anyone who hasn't visited your site and I must admit I only became aware of it maybe six or nine months ago and it's just it's a wealth of some of the most highest quality lessons I, I've ever seen so you're an absolute prolific resource creator my first question is what why why create and, and well sorry not why create the resources, but why share the resources with everybody
1: so why share them? Yeah. Um I I just um I just guess it's a, in my philosophy um in teaching of sort of um just if you've made something that you think has worked well of your own classes making it accessible to others I've I've got this general philosophy in, I think of um education being freely available as possible. Um and and um I just think it's really nice when I've got, I've got like an email from a teacher and they said, Oh, I've used this with my class and it's kind of really helped them to understand and such. And, and my, I think most of my biggest satisfaction in teaching comes from that when, when other teachers have benefited from, from something I've done or they, they've benefited from the enrichment materials and, and sent a nice email my way. Um, I think that's where my b- biggest satisfaction lies. Um, so it's kind of part of the philosophy, I think.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Well, I wonder if you could take us through, um, again, in, in as much detail as you like, just the process of, of putting a resource together. When you when you decide that you're going to create a, a PowerPoint and a worksheet and so on, how, how does that process happen? How, how do you start to build and plan that, that resource?
1: Um, well, the first step is always... Um Finding the questions, so, and, and, uh, and uh, well, in fact, no, sorry, that's not the first step. The first step is checking the specification, um, because I found often in my sort of training year, and even my NQT year, that I would often look at some kind of past papers, um, and maybe a textbook, and sort of, um, and, and glean the um, objectives from that, the learning objectives, yes. um, but actually, and there were certain things that weren't covered that I sort of missed out, um, so, since I, I make sure I, the first place, I, always the first port of call is to check the specification and see exactly what I'm supposed to be covering. Um, and then it's a case of finding the question. So I, I look on TES, um, I look in textbooks, I look in my 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 UKMT database that I have. Um, I look at sometimes on other people's sites and such. Um, and and it, it's I often kind of put them all into like a single Word doc. Uh, just a kind of raw collection of questions um, that I'm going to eventually sort of put into my slides. So at that point, I haven't yet thought about um, how those questions are structured into the lessons. Um, It's just a kind of raw collection of questions. Um, And then the rest of it is just really what I was talking about earlier, about how I structure a lesson. And and the same principles apply um, in terms of producing a resource. So I kind of think of the story I want to tell. Um, we're starting a motivating question, etc. Then I sort of uh, produce the exercises. Um, And as I said, I I, I try to make sure, uh, I have a separate kind of uh, word doc with the exercise in, but then I put all the answers in the slides to make sure they're all there. Um, And partly just so I don't have to fumble. It's partly a case of laziness, so I don't have to fumble around looking for answers in textbooks. Oh, where is that that answer? I can't find it. It's to save um, that kind of problem. Um, And with those exercises, I think, um, yeah, it's because I I don't think I've discussed so much of this before, but uh, with the questions, making sure they're suitably differentiated. So having enough of those easy ones where I can like a good extension, but also breadth. So even um, with the kind of core questions, trying to cover as many sort of different types of questions as possible sort of, getting students to think about how they can apply certain theory in different ways even when it might not be hugely difficult sort of that kind of breadth of different types of questions
0: um got and can i ask um as well because my, my, my students are a big fan of a uh, big fan of your lessons now that we, we've started doing them this year and they they like a couple of things about them they, they love when there's a bro tip <laughs> that, 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 that always goes down well they love a, a bro i'll say it wrong bro, when you fuse together bro and animation bro bro and animation, <laughs> they, love when, they love when that well, that's happened and they also love when um, a picture of your kids uh, some of your students are involved in in the lessons as well so i wonder if you can just talk about well i don't know whether it's a bit cringy to talk about that the kind of humor side of when you're putting things together but is, is that something that's that's quite important to you because they don't look like lessons to me that kind of take themselves too seriously if that makes sense that there's there's yeah definite aspects of them that are very kind of personal to you that that you've obviously included for a reason could you just talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i think no i, I do have a slightly bizarre sense of humor like there's one thing i do um with my lessons so I've got something called a merit llama and um, it's, it's all it is it's just a pitch of a llama that's printed on a piece of card that's laminated and, and I particularly use it with my year seven so um sort of I'm holding up the merit llama that um if they answer a question correctly that they then get a merit <laughs> and um as you can imagine whenever I'm, I'm holding up the merit llama there, there's kind of chaos with all the hands there like, hey, hey, hey. um and um it's just I don't know, it's part of my eccentricity maybe. I'm slightly eccentric and um and um have a slightly weird sense of humour and I'd and kinda like to put that into lessons, I think.
0: Fantastic! Well, I'm doing. I'm teaching um, compound measures to my year nines tomorrow morning. I'm using um, as a basis of, of, of my lesson. Your excellent um, a presentation. I think for your year eights, I think you designed it the um, your compound measure slide. And there's a lovely cat. There's a little cat animation going on where a cat is uh, bouncing between two points when you're working a speed distance time calculation out. And the, the kids, yeah, they're going to be off the heads when they see this, <laughs> this cat animation movie. So I look forward to that. But that leads me on to um, a point that I've, I've made often in the past and I, I'm just interested in your view on this I've, I've often said that um, a good question is a good question for everyone mm-hmm. but, a good, but a good lesson um, complete lesson resource may only be good for the person who created it mm-hmm. and the reason I've said that is, is often when a teacher says to me do you have anything good on straight line graphs or do you have anything good on sequences and I'll say oh yeah well I, I, I use this for my year 10s and give them the lesson they'll come back the next day and say oh that was a load of crap absolute nightmare that lesson Because, obviously, I've designed the lesson for my teaching style, for for my kids, for the time of the day I'm delivering the lesson and so on. Um, What's your take on that? Do you think there are certain lessons that are kind of universally good or do you think that your lessons that you design work the best for you and perhaps not so well for, for other teachers and perhaps teachers should and this is perhaps a leading question because this, this certainly gives away my view but perhaps your lessons should be taken by teachers and then adapted and perhaps slides taken in and taken out adapted to their own teaching style
1: um yeah well, it's partly why i make sure when i upload the so same worksheets that i upload them both as a pdf um and, and as a word doc, um, because um, I want teachers to be able to sort of maybe use some of the questions for take particular classes. Now, now there is a case that some of my lessons are more suited um, to high ability students. And I, I, I kind of accept that. Um, and, and it's partly why I've tried to make it easy for the teachers to sort of be able to use bits and pieces of my lessons where they can or parts of worksheets, parts of slides, etc., other teachers in my department sometimes where they're using some of my stuff even with the same ability group um that uh they might take some of my slides and sort of combining with other stuff like other worksheets they've used um so i generally try to make it um reusable as possible in terms of being able to extract particular parts
0: got it fantastic um could you tell, talk us through the um, future plans that you've, you've got for your site? And, and if possible, if, if you're allowed to talk about it, the, um, the Shine application the, the, and the process that you're going through.
1: Sure. So I've, um, uh, if, if, you, if you have visited my site recently, you'll see that on the homepage, there's this kind of clear distinction between my resources site, which is a kind of redesigned version of what I, I've had for the last three, even four years, um, and this kind of homework site. And what this is, it's um, it's a kind of platform that, whether the concept is, is quite a sort of, what is one that you've you've heard before, and then you've got a, a platform like this um, where it's an opportunity for students to kind of practice questions and 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 teachers to set that and monitor their work. Um, I think where um, where my my angle is slightly different is. Um, with many of these other systems like Haiti Mass diagnostic questions. Um, one is sort of like um, trying to use, well, probably AI techniques to kind of um, automate the process as much as possible. Um, so trying to build up a... Um, a, a kind of profile of students' exact uh, strengths and weaknesses and then having kind of algorithm which sort of says, okay, they, if they want questions on this particular, maybe this particular topic or even topics within a particular half term they're revising for to kind of select the kind of best question for them each time. So. Um, there's with each of these kind of skill descriptors, which might be, say, I don't know, find the area of the trapezium. Um, they would have like the maybe the percentage they got for the last five questions or something like their accuracy, but but also their level. So um, um, there'd be like level one, which is kind of your core, your sort of starter questions, level two, kind of core, level three more problem solving. And then sort of level four questions, which are a bit like the kind of killer questions within my resources. So um, it would be a platform which is really Fully tailored to the student, but also trying to automate the process as much as possible. So teachers would be able to set specific homeworks and assignments, um, but maybe um, a lot of emphasis on kind of independent, independent practice as such, and, and for students to um, have a full sense of, of kind of where they are. And teachers again to sort of have a full sense of where they are in every single different
0: topic. Geez, and what, what's the kind of time scale on this? Because I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating.
1: Um, well, I'm trying to get as much of the system programmed as possible with um, uh, potentially help from others um, by the end of the um, summer uh, holiday, where I can. Now, there's certain certain things I've done already. So, I've, one one interesting thing is I've got this um, algorithm which um, takes two algebraic expressions. So, you could type in an algebraic expression into like a kind of text uh, into a field, a form field, um, and then it would say whether they're um, algebraically equivalent or not. And there's sort of different levels. So let's say, for example, um, you had an A-level question um, where they had to give a particular answer, and, and maybe it was kind of like, I don't know, um, uh, x bracket, x minus one, um, mm-hmm. then you, you might want to, if it said that or equivalent, you wouldn't want to, want to yeah. accept x squared minus x, or more complicated stuff. Um, that if if like lun of x squared, they would accept two lun x and sort of being always able to spot when two expressions are equivalent. But then there's another level where actually you might want their answer to be kind of structurally the same. So if, um, for example, um, you... um, the answer was x brackets x minus one, and it was a factorization question. you wouldn't want them to put x minus yes. x because they haven't actually factorized it but where where some other systems have failed on this is that they don't spot where um expressions are um they're they're structurally uh, the same but um just slightly well it's structurally the same but not exactly as uh, expecting the answer so um an easy example like a minus b let's say the answer expected was that you would always want to accept minus b plus a it's effectively the same thing so it's spotting when um by building um a kind of looking at the syntactic structure of the algebraic expression if you can reorder um uh, operands in a commutative operation like plus like you can swap the arguments in plus or times and if two expressions can be attained from each other by just those movements then it would be considered like the, effectively the same expression um so it's th- things like I've, I've done bits and pieces so far but i'm going to try and get um for trial schools um in september something basic out um initially and then if um at the moment the um and i will be working with some other schools as well outside my own um if I can try and get it done for April, I can. That's the sort of initial target um, for for being open to for, for everyone. Um, but it's quite ambitious, so um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sure about. I'll stick to that. I'll try as hard as I can
0: flipping that i mean the thing there about um interpreting the algebraic um expressions that that has been the downfall of of many kind of automated marking um websites right like um my maths you you mentioned it before and a lot of people have a real pop at my maths and i think it has its limitations but generally i think it does does a, a decent job for what it's supposed to do but like the amount of times where like it'll mark something wrong for a student that if you were to mark it by hand you would you would give it them and, and whether it whether it is a minus b and minus b plus a or whether it's um you know leaving an answer as 7.0 and the answer is 7 or, or something like that or as the big one that you've picked up on the, the once the algebraic expressions get more complicated that and there's potentially infinite different mm. answers that could be right um it's it just almost becomes useless you know a, a, platform like that and if you can get that right that is yeah that that's a potential you know revolutionary moment so it sounds a massive job but uh yeah i'll be fascinated to see uh, how that how that turns out that, that's brilliant the, the,
1: the algorithm actually works to some extent so far um, i just need to tinker with it slightly because there's other examples where expression of be equipment like for example um like let's say it's a class between like writing x squared over two versus half x squared Yes. And at the moment, um, my system, if, if they had to, if you said it, so they had to be structurally equivalent, it, w- it would always spot their value equivalent in, in that, those two different forms. They wouldn't spot their structurally equivalent at the moment, but that, that's just a few kind of tinkering I
0: need to do. Flipping heck. It could be be a long summer. I I like it. That's that's good. Um, I wonder even now if we could turn to um, advice. And I wonder, the first question I'd like to ask you, Jamie, is um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that that perhaps you know now?
1: Um, I think the first thing is making a clear distinction between subject knowledge versus subject knowledge uh, for teaching and learning. Now I came into the sort of teaching world with with a slight bit of bravado, thinking my maths is quite good. Uh, This will be easy. And um, although it did help, um, I I realise now how much how much there is to know about how 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 to teach maths. Now. Understanding the theory um, in detail is very helpful for communicating it, but there's still so many subtleties and, and, and that can really only come from experience or, or kind of advice from other teachers, like um, how to like structure the topic, for example, how um, the, the exact minutiae of the kind of um, exam syllabi, the sort of types of questions that come up, um, particular misunderstandings that students might have, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think really that, um, even with teachers that come in with with very good subject knowledge that um, there's still a massive chasm between those two things subject knowledge and subject knowledge for teaching and learning
0: and you... I think you're absolutely right and as I've said both in this podcast and in previous ones that was the biggest shock to me that being good at maths doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be a good maths teacher. Mm-hmm. I think you're right it helps. I think often what's what's banded around is that um, the best teachers aren't necessarily you know the best mathematicians because they they can understand where students go wrong and find difficulties with maths because they themselves found it difficult and I think there is a certain amount of truth in that but also I think it's important to have that subject knowledge and because you can understand the progression of of mathematics where it's going and and what I mean by that is you can you can teach kids tricks that um, that perhaps get them through year seven and year eight algebra, but those tricks are going to mess them up big time when they come to GCSE and A level and so on. So I think it's getting that right balance. I think your subject knowledge. I mean, the ideal scenario is your subject knowledge is excellent, so you can see the progression of mathematics, and you can also relate to students, you know, levels of misunderstanding and misconceptions, and be able to engage with them. And it's that's the best of both worlds, and and mm. finding that right balance and combination, I think, is is the key to it
1: no I, th- I think i think both are important i think do some uh, teachers do underestimate the importance of just subject knowledge um in isolation Cause I, I do think it in terms of seeing the bigger picture of maths um and how to connect certain topics um i think that that only comes through kind of subject knowledge
0: as such um, yes. and then that translates
1: into subject knowledge for teaching but i think you can't have one without the other really
0: Yes, I, I completely agree, and the other thing and re- related to this is um I saw you had some tips for for trainee teachers yeah and I wonder I wonder if you could just share some of the ones of those that you you think are the most important because we have a lot of um trainee teachers and student teachers listening yep. to this podcast.
1: Well, that was the first one on the list. Um, couple things <laughs> I've got here. Um, yeah, I think we've kind of covered this, but it, the most important thing, and I'm, I'm sure that, that people's kind of choose and start to kind of go over this again and again and again and rabass on about it, but it's very important is what are the students learning, the kind of story you're telling the lesson. And I think that that kind of maybe influenced what you kind of choose as your lesson activities. I've seen before where um, uh, trained teachers have sort of tried to spend ages like laminating bits of cards. And, yes. And sort of not, not thinking about, um what students are getting out of it in terms of their learning experience so um it's kind of an obvious one but i think it's really important to always focus on that choosing activities based on what the students are learning
0: um
1: things that i i still get wrong as a teacher nowadays um is um trying not to cover too much Um, and I think with my observed lessons particularly in in my early years um, that was my biggest downfall trying to talk too much and because also with, with the pressure of being observed it sort of like you often spend more time than you usually would, sort of like dealing with student questions because you don't want to see like you're fobbing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Um. Yes. And, and suddenly, like when you've got lots of student questions, that like it, it blows up in terms of too much time, and you don't have enough time for uh, yes. the kind of main exercise at the end. So that that's a biggie, and 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 something I still have to make sure that I try.
0: And I think yeah, if I can just just uh, wholeheartedly agree with that. The um, the biggest thing I see when I when I'm very lucky when I, when I get to watch other teachers is is over planning, so planning yes. far too much, and then feeling obliged to fit all that into the lesson, Absolutely, no matter yes. what else is happening. That that is probably the single biggest thing I see, um, and that that took me many years to to kind of uh, to, to to judge just how much you should include in a lesson, and also have the confidence to say that if, if things aren't Going to plan just to abandon that lesson plan and adapt to, to the kids, but yeah, trying to fit too much, and I wholeheartedly agree with that.
1: Yeah, and I, I do feel for well, it's happened to me before where yeah, oh yeah. I felt like I've wanted to stick to the lesson plan um, because then because I'm I'm sort of following the plan of my lesson and such, and thinking that's what the observer wants to see. Yes. Um, but then then they, they've said after like actually no, it would be good if you sort of like. Um, sort of had a slight tangent and and sort of of abandoned some beta activity to make sure we're covering this more. So I yes. think that is very important. Uh, another thing I've got listed here is uh, positive behavior management. Um, now I'm I'm not an I'm not expert by any means, but um, where I have found most success myself is where i felt like it's not like a battle against the sort of disruptive students but sort of trying to positively manage that and what i mean is um kind of using encouragement and such um sort of putting systems in place to kind of uh, reward good behavior and such um so one thing that I, i do that that it is you were talking before about this like eccentricities of my lesson and my human and such. But one thing I do is having a good boy system. Um, and it sounds quite patronising, but the students love it, even the older ones. Um, and I sort of have a GB list on my wall. And if I, if, I, um, if I see a student working particularly well or they give a good answer, then they go up on the good boy list. Um, and then if they're on that by the end of the lesson, then they get a merit. And I actually had to cover, um, I had to cover um, a bottom set year nine the other day, um, and I had to use my kind of good boy list and and sort of say that they're working well, they'll be on it and they get a merit and such. Um, and I also said, like, if students show me the work at the end and see how much work they've done, um, that I would put them on the good boy list and give them a merit. And I wouldn't think with like a bottom set, yes. you know, they, they, there's maybe some of them are slightly more disengaged from maths that so they would care. But she had a slight cue at the end because they wanted <laughs> the evidence that they'd done the work so they could be on the good boy list. Um, so and I, I found that something that works quite well um and and just specific phrases as well like um yeah the one that i find find oddly works the most effectively is just um just um walking around and saying, oh i see um x is working well and then and this, this the quiet the class suddenly goes a lot quieter and um it's just weird that something so subtle like that yeah that impact um but then yeah it's sometimes easier said than done and if I have a student who's just been particularly annoying and I'm I'm sort of quite tired then it, it's hard sometimes for it not to seem like a slight battle um, but it's just trying to stay positive with that behaviour management I think um,
0: and, I th- and I think one of the things also that I, I read from your list that, that's directly related to that is sending a nice email to parents mm-hmm. if a student does something well or a phone call or whatever because again or the only time I phone parents, I'm going to be entirely honest with this, is when when there's a problem, and it's that that you know it, that it that that's just the, I think that's a a general thing that that happens for a lot of teachers because we're busy and so on, and the we don't have a lot of time to contact parents, and if we do, it's when when a child's misbehaving or so mm-hmm. on. But kind of that's that's almost um, kind of after the 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 uh, the incidents happen and so on, but. Rewarding positive behavior and informing students uh, students' parents about positive behavior that has such a positive impact on the kid themselves, and also word starts to spread round then i think and and you can kind of it's almost like an investment of your time in the future positive behavior of your students if you can if you can reward that positive behavior and inform parents about it. I think that's such a powerful thing mm.
1: and I think it's a case of, of to some extent trying to win over that more difficult student and I think if you send an email home like that then it's probably the most powerful way to win them over that yes. they've got that kind of credit home. They're sort of my dad has said something nice to them about, oh, your teacher said this. Yes. Um, and you've kind of won them over that. You've recognised that good behaviour. Um, and, and that's often where I've seen the, mo- the biggest change in terms of behaviour.
0: Absolutely, and I wonder if I can ask you just before we, we turn to um, your, your big three, um, you, you do a lot of tutoring Jamie and I wonder if you learnt anything from tutoring, do you think that's something that you'd encourage teachers to do, obviously you, you get extra income from it but is it something valuable? Um, that you would recommend teachers do to improve their teaching practice? Is there any particular things you learn from, from tutoring, do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I, one thing I've learned so much about is the different kind of uh, exam boards and sort of seeing what's in the specifications for different exam boards. And, and so we, we, for example, looking at the new A-level um, uh, kind of options and such, the new, the new qualification. Um, and it's just interesting to see how it kind of compares against sort of older um, Schemes of work from from different examples and and, and comparing them um, and you, you yeah it just really broadens your knowledge of these different examples and, and the context of where things fit in. Um, I think another thing is for me because I work at a grammar school, um, I have a certain range of ability of students. Like within our bottom set at GCSE, like we would ex- we'd still expect half of them to get a star. <laughs> that, that, that's
0: flipping heck,
1: um, and. Um, and the, and the lowest grade we, we usually expect is a B, maybe just a, just a few individuals in the year. Um, but mo- but most of the bottom set getting A's or A stars. Um, so it is extent that you don't get some of the, the very, very weakest students. Um, and I found tutoring has been particularly good experience for me uh, grasping uh, where less able students have their misunderstandings. But I've still found that's been very applicable to how I teach my own students at Tiffin um, and sort of thinking, and even though with the weaker students at Tiffin, that they might not struggle so much as um, a kind of student at other school, um, still think, having to be able to reflect on how weaker students understand things, internalise things, um, has been really helpful in my teaching for those students at my own school.
0: Fantastic, superb. Well we've uh, come to the part of the show now, Jamie, where I'm gonna turn it over to you for your big three. So if someone was uh visiting three websites or web pages for the first time, um what, what would you what would you direct them towards?
1: Um now this might seem a bit obsequious, but I'm gonna to have to mention your side, Mr. Barton. Oh,
0: um, you contractually obliged to so. I wish all my guests would be in business, <laughs> Jamie. But it was actually
1: no no honestly it was the first kind of teacher website that I encountered before I started teaching. And in fact, like .trustmaths.com is basically a ripoff of Mr. Barton Maths. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just use exactly the same domain address format and just put my <laughs> name and title in it. That's the only difference. Um, and and certain of your le- there's various of your PowerPoints I've seen. Um, for example, I think there's one on um, indices and your kind of um, mnemonic of flip root power. Yes. Uh, if you remember doing that. And I, I think I, if you look in my industry slides, you'll find the same thing. I I've, I've thought that was a really good way of students remembering that. And I've put that in my own slides. Um, and um, yeah, I always make sure if, I, if I'm ever giving any public talks I, and I've got a list of recommended sites that so your, your, your site is the first there.
0: Oh, that's, that's very kind. And uh, as I was talking to you just, just um, off air, there'll be big, uh, big improvements to the site coming over summer. It's coming up to its 10th year anniversary, so ah. it's a uh, 10th, 10th year special renovation uh, <laughs> over summer. But it's very kind. Thank you, Jamie, for that. What about what about number two?
1: Um, I think um, Joe Morgan's site, um, Resourceaholic. Um, and it's something because I'm... Well, partly the reason my site exists is because I'm so bad at using other teachers' resources <laughs> and then start completely sort of reinventing the wheel. But there's, it's part of the case that, like, I know why I, I make the resource myself, that I, I can sort of have it very tailored to my own students and such. But, but her, source, her site is just wonderful um, in terms of just, like, seeing what other teachers have done yes. and kind of exploring different teaching ideas. And it, it really,
0: yeah, it really is a wonderful website. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And what, what about number three?
1: Uh, number three is the UKMT website, the UK Mathematics Trust website. Um, they put so many of their materials on there um, and there might be a limited supply of past papers. But if you actually go to UKMT dash resources.org.uk um, they have a lot of their past math challenge papers and more recently they've kind of been putting Olympia papers on there as well with the answers so they, they, they make those questions uh, freely available uh, and all the mentoring questions as well that like they have this mentoring scheme um, and we're exploring in my school how we can sort of incorporate that into um, our systems at my my own school um, but they're, all those questions available with full solutions um, as, as kind of enrichment for the very most stable um, students um, and um, yeah I, I can't I couldn't possibly thank UKMT enough like there's all these sorts of uh, various enrichment resources around and many of them go like enrich and, and such but in terms of the impact that UKMT have had in terms of getting students interested in mathematics and how effectively they do it um, yes. like they really are a truly wonderful organization I, I couldn't speak more highly of them.
0: I agree. I think that's an excellent thing, and it's one of those it's one of those websites that people are aware of, and people know. Like most teachers will be aware of it, but it's. It needs sometimes people, and like me included, need a reminder of just, just how good it is. And the, as happens in teaching every kind of three to four years, there's a, a big push on, right, our kids need to be problem solvers. We need to get rich tasks, all this kind of stuff. Well, look no further than UKMT mm-hmm. because what just one of those questions could take an entire lesson and yeah. just lead to discussions and tangents and get kids structuring answers differently and communicating with each other, talking mathematically and so on. Mm-hmm. It's just... And there's 20 odd years worth of just world-class math stuff on there. I think that's an, an excellent choice well Jamie we've we're well, well over the two hour mark here so firstly I, I want to apologise for taking up so much of your time on, on a Sunday but more than that I want to thank you firstly for, for sharing all, all your um, your thoughts and your ideas with us but but secondly and this is a, a selfish thank you but I, I think I'm speaking on behalf of, of the teaching community here just thank you for the wonderful resources and your generosity in sharing the, the lessons you put together very rarely I think can is there a website or, or a person who who designs consistently high quality stuff and and i know that if i need a lesson on something i can go to your website and i've got an 80 percent of the jobs done because you've got all your slides got all the enrichment stuff and then as we talked about before i just maybe adapted a little bit to suit my teaching mm-hmm. style so just thank you for sharing all that and i can't wait to see what uh, what the homework site brings thank so you. thank you so much jamie thank you So, there was my interview with Jamie Frost. I really hope you found that interesting and enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, For my takeaway this week, I really want to focus on this concept of high-achieving students. I'm going to be entirely honest, as I was during the podcast, I don't think there's any doubt that it is easier teaching high-achieving students than it is teaching low-achieving students. However, it is not easy teaching them, if that makes sense. Um, For a start, there's a lot of pressure. Now, I know you're probably thinking here, well, wait a minute, if I've got my uh, middle set year 11s and they're a CD borderline class, then flipping it, that's a load of pressure. And I know I've I've been there myself with with, with a class this year with, with that kind of pressure. But if you've got that high achieving class and they have to get that A star, then flipping it, that is pressure. There is not a great deal of margin for error um, between getting the A star and getting the A with, with the grade boundaries the way they have been over the last few years. And I remember last year I had a, a top set year 11. And honestly, it was tough because I wanted to do all the enrichment stuff. I inherited them at the start of year 11. And I wanted to show them out why I loved mathematics so much and just take topics into great depth and so on. But as I say, I picked them up in the September of year 11. They had massive gaps in their knowledge. Their targets were A's and A stars. And we had to flip a motor through the content, plug in in gaps, and then get them exam ready for it. And it wasn't a particularly um, enjoyable experience. It was a high pressure um, experience, both for me and the students. And in the end, it turned out all right, but I would have loved to have those students from year seven and and nurture them um, all the way through. Um, And even if you you don't have um, necessarily top set, classes. We all have students within our um, individual classes, whatever um, ability they may may be, that stand out from that class. And it's very important to keep them engaged and challenged. And that's not always an easy thing. Um, I had a year 11 student uh, last year. She won't mind me name dropping her ear (laughs) as if she'd be listening to this anyway. Um, Josie, she was called, and she was flipping good. A really good mathematician and, and an absolute delightful girl. She was the kind of student where when I'm going through a worked example on the board, I've got one eye on the board and one eye on Josie because um, she's checking my work and she just subtly give me a nod saying for, for once you haven't made a mistake sir so she's absolutely ideal student but it's very hard to keep her um, engaged and challenge them all the time and the temptation is just to um, either do what um, Jamie's teacher um, did and kind of let him get on with his own stuff um, but I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that, I know I know there's a need for it sometimes but I wanted to keep Josie as part of the lesson um, or kind of let her get on with the next topic that, that was coming up if she would mastered the current one but what's the flipping point in that, otherwise it's just a race through the content and by the time Josie had finished, the rest of the class would have like two or three months to go of of school so what's the point in that? So wherever possible I I tried to keep Josie um, engaged in in the lesson and the topic itself that the rest of her classmates were doing. And for there I I looked to a number of resources now some some of these are obvious like Enrich um, and again just like the UKMT challenge questions I think Enrich is one of those uh, websites that every teacher knows about but it's often um woefully underused and i think i'm going to be entirely honest i think there's a few structural problems with the way uh, enrich is organized and and um, the kind of teaching materials that, that that come with the problems but there is a wealth of amazing stuff in there and um, so enrich definitely helped um, when i was when i was teaching josie i wish i'd discovered jamie's website and um, uh, last year because flippin' Eck, and um, you have no shortage of, of of enrichment and challenge stuff to use there Um, and Jamie makes wonderful use of the UKMT challenge questions just to have them all sorted out and know that if you're teaching a lesson on sequences or factorising or percentages or whatever you've got a worksheet there that has picked out some really lovely questions that just tackle those topics in great depth without you needing to go on to the next topic you've got the depth in there and there's answers provided as well which (laughs) for someone like me is definitely uh, definitely welcome Um, and median as well, the median Maths blog with Don Stewart. Um, I've made no secret that Don Stewart is probably my biggest hero um, in the world, and I'd, I'd love to get him get him on this podcast at some stage. But his his resources are just phenomenal for for enrichment, for challenge, for generalisation, pattern spotting, and so on. And and one of my uh, one of my ideas behind the redesign of my Mr Barton uh, Maths website over the summer is just to make all these excellent resources kind of all all come together. So there's a little teaser for that one. Um, and also, and this, this sounds like a pathetic plug, but I'm not making any money um, out of it so I hope you'll forgive me but one thing that I used to to really challenge Josie uh, last year was was through diagnostic questions and that was when I asked a question to to the class um, and the rest of the class were voting and, and then coming up with their explanation how they'd explain it Um, I took it to the next level with with Josie, Um, and Josie not only had to provide an explanation for the correct answer, but she also had to identify why I'd chosen each of the three wrong answers, so what misconception were those three wrong answers uh, revealing there. Um, And then, to take it one level further, she then had to write her own diagnostic question, um, explain what the right answer was, and explain why she'd chosen the three wrong answers. And then we could use that question with the rest of the class um, at the end of the lesson. And that kept Josie engaged, it kept her um, on the same topic as everyone else so I could use her to, to help and um, I could bring her together bring it together in the plenary but it challenged her skills of communication and her, her appreciation of topics and as we all find as teachers and this was why I asked Jamie the question and um, it's one thing being able to do the topic yourself and that's the kind of subject knowledge but it's another thing being able to convey that to, to students and that's what Josie found really hard and it really deepened her understanding of even kind of the most simple topics to her like simple simplifying fractions or solving linear equations when she was having to think what mistakes would other students make and how am i going to bring those out in a question that was a really deep skill and if you you're obsessed with um bloom's taxonomy then you know that's getting right to the heart of it with with the kind of skills that are bringing that out so yeah just to just to summarize um I, again I'm, I'm going to be entirely honest it is easier teaching high achieving students but it's not necessarily easy teaching them well um, and it doesn't necessarily follow that a high achieving student will be naturally engaged in mathematics and, and just be an absolute nerd and a geek like I am and which I think is fair to say Jamie is too and it's about finding those materials and those ways and methods to engage them and hopefully uh, you've picked up a few ideas from from listening to Jamie anyway, um, Jamie's back for one more one more kind of uh, I don't know what you call it well, one more guest guest appearance one more cameo at the end of this podcast with a lovely podcast puzzle so I'm going to shut up now because flipping neck I've gone on too long here and I'm going to hand back to Mr. Jamie oh sorry Dr. Jamie Frost
1: Bob the Pants postman has five letters to deliver, one to each of five houses. How many ways are there of Bob delivering the letters so that no one gets the correct letter?
0: So, there you have it. Another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast Done and Dusted. I really hope you enjoyed that one. All that's left for me to do is to once again thank my excellent guest, Jamie Frost, for sharing his time with us um, and also for producing some wonderful free resources. And also to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Um, If you do have a spare moment and you fancy giving us a, a review on iTunes, ideally a good one, then I would be eternally grateful. And I shall return with another wonderful guest from the world of mathematics next time. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and bye for now.